40 here. Hurricane Hillary is just bearing down. Let's uh, cross here to a live report. Okay, uh, picking it up here. In oh my God! In North Carolina, right at the Intracoastal, and we're in one of these bands. So that's Mike Seidel in Wilmington, North Carolina. But as he braces and fights the wind Friday, check out the two guys who seem to walk right by him in the background there with no trouble at all. The video has been shared more than a million times on social media. So now a spokesperson for the Weather Channel is defending Seidel, saying it's important to note that the two individuals in the background are walking on concrete while Seidel tries to maintain his footing on wet grass. The spokesperson goes on to say Seidel was exhausted after reporting on air until 1 a.m. Okay, so Hurricane Hillary bearing down, guys. I, I want to go out fighting. I want to go out live streaming. I want to go out telling the truth. This is the last thing I do before the hurricane hits. All right, this is, this is who I am. This is where I stand. I can do no other. So help me God. And uh, did you know that America's at the crossroads, guys? America's at the crossroads. Los Angeles is at the crossroads. We're, we are facing down a hurricane, but America's facing down hurricanes of its own. America at the crossroads. Can you imagine a series, Judy Woodruff presents, America you know, stumbling along doing okay. Wow, that sounds like a compelling series. So the news has an interest in hyping up what it does to feel more important, just like your dentist has an interest in hyping up what he does. Ooh, looks like you've got some major cavities. You'll need a crown and, and a root canal. That's going to be $8,000. Okay, so dentists probably out of all the professions have the worst quality control. Uh, everybody wants to exaggerate their own importance. And this is true for doctors, for lawyers, accountants, plumbers. It's just part of the human condition and certainly true of journalists too. And one way they do that is by hyping stories, trying to compel your attention. So America at the crossroads, my God. An influential group of Republican Whoa. legal voices today endorsed the January 2024 trial date proposed by special counsel Jack Smith. So these very important Republican legal voices were probably just as adamantly opposed to Donald Trump in 2015. Right? The establishment's always been opposed to Donald Trump whether it's the GOP establishment, the Democratic establishment, the financial establishment, the corporate establishment, the military establishment, the establishment by and large opposes Donald Trump. And so it's not like this is some you know, shocking new development. In his 2020 election interference case against former President Donald Trump, the group included former Attorney General Alberto Gonzalez, appointed by George W. Bush, and J. Michael Ludick, a retired federal appellate judge and one of the nation's leading conservative legal minds. Judy Woodruff recently visited Judge Ludick at his home in Colorado as part of her... Okay, do you think he would be cons considered one of the conservative movement's uh, legal, leading legal minds by the mainstream media if he wasn't adamantly opposed to Donald Trump? Do you think he would be equally considered a leading legal mind of the conservative movement if he was for Donald Trump somehow I don't think so and this guy at this age I don't think he's leading anything ongoing series America at a crossroads I understood the gravity of this matter and I understood so he understands he understands the gravity he understands the seriousness this is a man of, of deep moral seriousness all right he is willing to to look evil in its eye. He, he's willing to confront very painful realities. 
And this is what makes this special. And this is why you should listen to it. All right. We're, we're all trying to aggrandize ourselves, including me. I'm trying to aggrandize myself by taking down those who aggrandize themselves. From my lifetime of experience in and around those offices and those institutions, that this was catastrophic for America and for American democracy. Retire well, how about uh, the news media and the Democrats for approximately three years hyping up that uh, Russia hacked the 2016 election and that therefore the results were not valid and that Donald Trump was an illegitimately elected president? Uh, how is that any less catastrophic compared to Republican denials of 2020 election returns? Judge Michael Ludig is one of the most influential conservatives to have served in the federal judiciary. He clerked for Supreme Court Justice Antonin Scalia while he was on the appellate circuit, the most served as assistant counsel to President Ronald Reagan, and was the assistant attorney general under President George H.W. Bush, who later appointed him to the United States Court of Appeals. He was twice considered for nomination himself to the Supreme Court. I felt that I had an, a profound obligation to the country to speak and to explain all of what had happened. He feels a profound obligation to go on TV to get as much you know, coverage as possible, to publish in as many prestigious outlets as possible. He knows that he has a message that aligns with the interests of the elite, with the establishment. So it's not like he's doing something particularly brave here. Now, he may be absolutely right. And I, I agree with his points, except I don't agree with the apocalyptic end of times tenor of his points. I do believe that January 6th reflected you know, ill upon Donald Trump and upon many of his supporters. Well-known in Republican legal circles, Ludig burst into public view when on January 5th, 2021, he advised then-Vice President Mike Pence to defy former President Trump's plea not to serve. What's my take on the new COVID variant getting pushed by the media? Well... COVID seems a lot like uh, other influenzas in that it's continually mutating. It's not like uh, when you get a vaccine for the measles, right? You can be pretty sure you're not going to get the measles or you get a vaccine for this. You can be pretty sure you're not going to get that. But when it comes to influenzas, right, we don't have vaccines that are 100% effective at uh, ever preventing getting sick. We can reduce the odds of getting sick and we can reduce the odds of getting seriously sick and getting hospitalized and dying from various influences, whether COVID or not. I, the new variant, I don't have any strong opinion on it. I'd be surprised if COVID didn't keep mutating. Of course, it's going to keep mutating. Eventually, it will mutate itself out of, you know, out of uh, the deadly range. Certify the 2020 election results. Judge Ludig, thank you as well for being here with Am I going to get the new COVID booster? Yes, I'll probably get it in something like October because it seems to provide the most protection for the first, well, four, eight, 12 weeks after you get the booster. So I'd want the most protection heading into the flu season. With us today, Ludig spoke. So all those people who said that the COVID vaccine was going to kill you, all right, was going to cause irreparable health detriments, uh, doesn't seem to have worked out that way about it in dramatic testimony more than a year later before the House January 6th committee that was investigating the insurrection. Donald Trump and his allies and supporters are a clear and present danger. 
Oh wow, that's dramatic. I, I feel I feel a, a a thrill going up and down my leg right now. Do I think masks and restrictions are coming back? Uh, may very well come back to some parts of the country. I don't think they're going to come back, you know, across all fifty states. What about all the excess death data? Where is that coming from? Yeah, COVID has caused an excess amount of deaths. Right, it's the first time that we've had a substantial reduction in life expectancy or one of only two times in the past 80 years. So COVID caused over a million Americans to die. The average number of years lost per death, according to one academic study, was 16 years. So yeah, COVID caused a dramatic increase in the number of excess deaths and a dramatic decrease in life expectancy. To American democracy. Challenging Trump so publicly thrust him into the hot lights of American politics, where he. Well, excess deaths among the young. So we do have young people who've died from COVID. We also, I would expect, have a lot more young people who've died from the massive increase in violence that we've seen since 2020. And I understand that there's been an increase in suicide rates. So that would also account for excess deaths. Uh, I think Americans are lonelier than they habitually were and so that would that would account in large part for deaths of despair he's been ever since we sat down with judge ludig at his home in vale colorado to talk about where the country is in the aftermath of the past two and a half tumultuous years so if he didn't say anything all right no tv cameras would be coming to visit this guy he's only getting attention because he's saying that uh, donald trump and his supporters are a clear and present threat to the country. Now, that doesn't mean he's wrong, but when when pundits like me and pundits like this guy speak out, it's important to understand what are the incentives operating here. He would not be getting on TV if he said that Donald Trump and his supporters were not a clear and present threat to the republic. Right? Nobody would want to come interview him. Nobody publish him in the New York Times or the Washington Post or Politico. It's just like doing a live stream about how the evidence for UFOs is really poor, right? Doing that kind of live stream, you're not going to get big numbers. New York Times is not going to interview you, right? The New York Times has published a bunch of UFO stories because it's exciting, not because the evidence is strong. So a lot of what the news media does is try to grab your attention. It's not necessarily what's important. You've been saying for months that Americans have lost their moral compass and that with this loss of direction, Americans have lost all perspective. What brought you to that conclusion? For almost 250 years, Judy, uh, there was all but a consensus among the American public on the fundamental values and principles. Uh, really? <laughs> I mean, how, how does he come up with this? How, uh, where's the evidence that there's been a, a fundamental consensus on the fundamental values and, and principles? Uh, there's never been a fundamental consensus about our fundamental values and, and principles. This is pure delusion. There's no evidence. Does he present any evidence for this? No, he does not present any evidence for this. A lot of people say things like this, but where's the evidence that uh, we ever had you know, consensus on values and, and principles? Right? Most people aren't intellectual enough to be able to articulate values and principles, let alone to articulate a consensus on them. On which America was founded, and then all of a sudden it seems uh, we don't agree on anything. America was not founded on the basis of values and principles. America was founded on the basis of what's in the best interest for us and for our posterity. 
right? It was a concrete people who largely came from the United Kingdom who established a nation that was developing upon the principles of common law and practices of common law that they'd gotten from England, and they developed a nation-state to serve their own interests and the interests of their posterity. This idea that America was founded primarily on the basis of principles and values is just sheer delusion without evidence. Thing at all. We have not talked to each other as friends and fellow citizens. Is it okay to mark retards who wear masks while driving alone in their cars? Yeah, I guess on, on the one hand, it is a ridiculous thing to do. On the other hand, they are virtue signaling, and virtue signaling is good. Right? They are signaling that they take COVID transmission seriously and that they are trying to do their bit to be pro-social. So people virtue signal all the time, and generally speaking, that's a good thing. You want people to signal that they are pro-social. So I would differ from almost all everyone on the distant right and almost all talking head conservatives who condemn virtue signaling. I think virtue signaling is a great thing. Like you have signaling throughout nature, right? Animals signal, right? So why wouldn't people signal? Americans uh, who uh, share the same destiny and have the same hopes and dreams for America uh, for six or eight years now. And that being the case, you're... You're still confident that there's more that we have to agree on? I am. I know that there's more that we agree on than that we disagree on. Our officials and our elected leaders have... Most people don't live lives revolving around politics. So, yeah, we can agree that most people don't live lives revolving around politics and that whether Barack Obama, Joe Biden, or Donald Trump is president, it's not going to make one whit of difference for the overwhelming majority of Americans the overwhelming majority of the time have talked to the nation and talked to we Americans as if we were enemies of each other. And we've never been enemies of each other over the timeline of the past 10, 15, 20 years. Yeah, at times we felt like enemies to each other when there were a substantial number of communists in this country. I would say that a lot of Americans felt that they were enemies when we passionately disagreed about going to war, whether World War I or World War II or Vietnam, or Iraq and Afghanistan, we've often felt that other Americans were enemies. I mean, this idyllic past that this guy conjures up, I don't think it was nearly so idyllic. Leaders on both sides of the aisle have failed us. But as of today, and for the past two and a half years, since January 6, 2021, uh, it has been the Republicans who have reprehensively failed us uh, as Americans. And what about the Democrats and the media hyping that Russia hacked the 2016 election? Was, were they failing us to right, the number one story in the country between the end of 2015 and the release of the Mueller report right, turned out to be empty? Is that a failure? On January 6th, the former president and the Republican, ally, his allies and supporters declared war on American democracy. How much was Okay, if they declared war on American democracy, right, how many people did they murder? How many people did they kill? They didn't kill anyone. So that's just hyperbolic lying, uh, uh, the most rank sort. All right, he's talking about needlessly dividing Americans while accusing a substantial portion of America as going to war with the rest of America without any evidence that they killed anyone. That to me is disgusting. That to me is reprehensible. 
That, to me, corrodes and corrupts American democracy. This guy is shameless. Responsibility does former President Trump himself bear for all this? He bears disproportionate uh, share of responsibility, if not the entire responsibility. Okay, to argue that Donald Trump bears entire responsibility is to say that those people who invaded the Capitol on January 6th have no agency. And that's a ridiculous claim to make. Uh, Donald Trump never urged his supporters to do anything illegal, right? If, if saying we have to fight for our country is a call for committing illegal violence, right, then almost every politician has used that language. There's no language that Donald Trump has used uh, with regard to January 6th and what, what was going to happen on January 6th that was different from normal American political rhetoric. Now, I do blame Donald Trump for January 6th in part because he laid the groundwork by contesting what were clear election victories by the Democrats. Former president sought to overturn an American election, which he had lost fair and square, for four years. Donald Trump definitely encouraged a gathering on January 6th. He encouraged a protest on January 6th. He never encouraged committing criminal acts, never encouraged going out there and, you know, trashing the American Capitol, right? He hyped it up by saying that the election was stolen. So, yeah, by making the argument the election was stolen, you then remove normal moral constraints from people. So, so yeah, I, I can see that argument. I see, I see him morally bearing a large amount of responsibility for January 6th. I didn't see him legally bearing a large amount of responsibility for January 6th. So I'm not aware of any of his rhetoric leading up to January 6th and saying that we need to fight for our country. I don't see any of that as different from other political rhetoric. I, I do blame him for contesting the elections and saying they were stolen. These claims by the former president and his Republican allies have corroded and corrupted and Ricardo makes a great point. Trump told us they were stealing the election. What followed was a low-intensity version of what should have happened if what he said was true. Yeah, 100% agreement there. American democracy and American elections. Vast, vast numbers of Americans into the millions today no longer believe in the elections in the United States of America. And is that any different than the Democrats' reaction to 2016? Right. The Democrats, by and large, thought the 2016 election had been hacked and that the, 20, the, the year 2000 election was stolen from them. So this is a pretty common reaction by losers. Carter says the new American Republic will have January 6th as a major holiday. <laughs> we'll get off work from Christmas through the first week of January. It's going to be great. They no longer believe in the institutions of law and democracy in America. Look, people say things when they're upset. You, you can't equate the things that people say when they're upset after they've lost a close election with their you know, deepest, most profound, most thoughtful responses. So Republicans were upset over the 2020 election results, and uh, then, then they'll just get on with life, right? There hasn't been a wave of Republican you know, assassinations and murders as a result of the 2020 election. The very pillars of our foundation, and many of those people have begun even to question the Constitution of the United States. But you're saying the damn... Oh, my God, you shouldn't question the Constitution of the United States? 
I mean, lawyers and judges are questioning the Constitution and interpreting the Constitution all the time. What's wrong with ordinary people questioning this very same document? I mean, do you think the founders of the United States envisaged the day that we would have uh, same-sex marriage as the law of the land? Damage done has been far, far greater than former President Trump, January 6th, and the immediate actions that were taken in that time period. Yes, there's no question. Never again will uh, the world be inspired to uh, by America and America's democracy in the way that it... Ah, uh, so is the world... Has the world been inspired by America and its democracy? Well, to the extent that America has been effective and strong, then it's normal and natural to, you know, respect people who are strong. And the United States is still strong. We've got nuclear weapons and the world's most powerful economy. So even though we'll have riots and even though we'll have people who will occasionally defecate in places where they shouldn't defecate, like the state capital, all right, uh, the world will still have to respect American power as long as America is powerful. It has been for uh, since our founding, almost 250 years ago. The, the, the indictment and, and, and prosecution of the president doesn't end or even begin to resolve this matter. How much does it matter what the verdict of that trial is? All that matters is that the president will be tried for these grave offenses. Had he not, he would have made a mockery out of the Constitution and the rule of law. But do you worry that um, whether there's a, an acquittal or a conviction what the effect could be? We can uh, uh, expect that if the president were to be acquitted, that uh, he and all of his supporters would uh, claim that that was vindication, that uh, he was right that the 2020 presidential election was stolen from him. Also, they would claim that this is vindication, that the legal system is being used to try to diminish democracy by removing the ability to vote for, for Donald Trump from the American people. So most of these indictments against Donald Trump seem to me very weak, and therefore they, with good reason, create great subs suspicion of our legal processes and legal institutions from Americans who see that uh, their ability to vote for Donald Trump for president is attempting to be dismissed. So people that have good reasons to have greater and greater skepticism of the FBI, of our justice system, when they see the way that these fairly flimsy indictments are being brought against Donald Trump. Were that to be the case, I don't believe that, 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 that American democracy could be saved, at least in the... Uh... He doesn't believe American democracy can be saved. Really? All right. So if Trump, if Trump gets off from these indictments, uh, this guy, Judge Lustig, doesn't believe that American democracy can be saved. Right? That uh, just strikes me as completely absurd. All right, let's get back to decoding trauma. So trauma has now become the dominant way that many people make sense of their lives. Placing trauma science on the cutting edge of respectable, mainstream psychiatric research. The war on terror affected a pivot in the type of trauma research that was funded toward the neurobiology of PTSD. This came as a vindication to Vanderkolk and gave him a chance to shake off the dead weight of the recovered memory wars. Federal funding was also adopting an increasingly open mind to non-pharmaceutical treatments. Immediately following the 9-11 attacks, Vanderkolk and the Trauma Center treated first responders and civilians using eye movement desensitization and reprocessing. 
in which a patient thinks about a traumatic experience while a clinician guides the patient's eyes back and forth. Though initially skeptical, Vanderkolk became an EMDR evangelist. Lead- All right, so a lot of this is about how do we get funding? All right, how do we make it uh, kosher for insurance companies and government-funded healthcare to fund us doing the type of therapy that we want to get funding for. So professions fight over prestige, power, and funding. Reading a study funded by the National Institutes of Health comparing EMDR to Prozac for the treatment of PTSD. In 2008, he started the first NIH-funded study on yoga's effectiveness in treating PTSD. He also conducted research on neurofeedback, a therapy that shows patients Okay, so there's no objective way for testing PTSD. And so to then have tests on how effective is yoga for dealing with this entirely subjective analysis of uh, PTSD, diagnosis of PTSD, is uh, quite a a flimsy study. Patients real-time readouts of their pulse and brain waves and teaches them to self-regulate. What united this arsenal of somatic therapies was that they targeted the body rather than cognition, like cognitive behavioral therapy, or language, like talk therapy. Meanwhile, Vanderkolk began forging a network of alliances that could transform trauma treatment. He has always been an incredible networker, recalled Herman. At the time, somatic therapies ranged Yeah, if you want to become influential, it helps to be a networker, right? There are certain types of personality that are better suited for success in the world. So high verbal IQ, being more extroverted than introverted, by being more agreeable than disagreeable, by having some openness to new experience, by being high in conscientiousness and low in hysteria, right? These tend to make for more socially effective personalities. You're going to be much more influential if you're living in a city. Right, you have more opportunities to network than if you're in the country. Ranging from holistic-oriented yoga to internal sensing practices were on the outskirts of accepted treatment. For the group of practitioners long dismissed as New Age flakes, Vanderkolk's enthusiasm came as a godsend. For the first time, a traditional, mainstream psychiatrist and neurobiology researcher was legitimizing the importance of understanding the effects of psychological disturbance on the body, Babette Rothschild, the author of The Body Remembers, said to Psychotherapy Networker in 2004. But these new approaches were controversial. In the opinion of Richard Bryant, another trauma researcher, Vanderkolk had marginalized himself as a scientific thinker. Vanderkolk's biggest collaboration was with the National Child Traumatic Stress Network, a group of clinicians, researchers, and families that had been created by Congress to improve treatment for abused children. Starting in 2005, Vanderkolk and his allies began a campaign to get a diagnosis they called Developmental Trauma Disorder into the fifth edition of the DSM, scheduled to be published in 2013. Our current diagnostic framework is grossly inadequate to capture the deficits in impulse control, self-regulation,
aggression, and concentration in abused and neglected children, wrote Vanderkolk in a 2009 trial. Whoops, I was muted. So I'm seeing the first signs of uh, Hurricane Hillary. We've got raindrops outside. It's unusual to get substantial amounts of rain in August in Southern California. I will keep you apprised as Hurricane Hillary blows through. Trauma Center newsletter. Psychiatry, he claimed, needed to understand that a vast array of diagnoses, from bipolar disorder to substance use disorders to personality disorders, are not so much discrete diseases as, at root, all caused by trauma. The fight. So we can, <laughs> there, there is a huge human tendency to want to boil down everything to one cause. So trauma is one, I would say, lack of connection. But to boil down mental illness to one primary problem, I'd say lack of meaningful human ties, lack of meaningful connection, lack of an ability to stay in relationship to others and to sustain a sense of your most important relationships as you go out on through your day. Fight over developmental trauma disorder was field-wide and acrimonious. If accepted into the DSM-5, critics argued, DTD would become a kind of diagnostic blob, absorbing an enormous range of diagnoses with little concern for what skeptics believed were crucial differences. Vanderkolk threw his energy into the campaign. When DTD wasn't included in the DSM-5, it came as a bitter disappointment. Still, the campaign was a victory in another sense— in the world of therapists, psychiatrists, and researchers, the fight over DTD mainstreamed an expansion of trauma from acute stressors, like a bomb explosion or sexual assault, to developmental traumas, or all the ways a caregiver's failure to provide safety can change a child's development. Yeah, so it's child abuse. All right, if you don't uh, provide safety for your child in every possible way and do absolutely everything you can to allow your child to thrive, right? It's, uh, it's traumatic and it's child abuse. And people can carry a sense of that with them through life. So do you remember the commentator L. Jim? So he was a regular on this show. He's probably in the chat more than 100 times. And then his comments just became more and more uh, off the wall and abusive. And so finally I banned him in 2019. He was so traumatized by it, he, he wrote a a five-page essay that he turned over to Ricardo called Luke the Philosopher. He says, I used to defend Luke doing his free speech stance. And now Luke has tried and tried and failed. Right? Luke is never able to you know, walk the path due to his visible nervous tics, silent la-la-las, loud hyperventilations, other clear signs of anxiety. It's a real shame, but it is what it is. Luke tried and failed. His mind wasn't strong enough. It was weak and frail, mentally ill. He allowed his mind to be controlled by people who use this weakness against him. So who are all the people who are controlling my mind? Just curious how this uh, essay stands up uh, four years later. I saw here a man who was weak and frail and mentally ill and could be persuaded into doing whatever they wanted. A man who probably did suck the dicks of those creepy old homos who used to let him live with them. <laughs> a man who sought out the porn industry in pursuit of love. <laughs> he was an easy target. So who are all these people who have me dancing? <laughs> dancing to their tune. 
And so his theory is that uh, Kyle was a major father figure for me, and I could not resist uh, resist Kyle's influence. That uh, Kyle appeals to Luke's psychological scars and flaws, and his deficiencies as a grown man who never truly grew up or learned how to get on with living or to accept life for what it is. So Luke's son Kyle is not quite Luke's father. Luke is the feeble boy who stuck around for the abuse while the same crowd left. Same crowd left. The son, meaning Kyle, has become the father, and the father, meaning me, has become the son. So he doesn't actually have any arguments to make. It's just a five page of, of ranting. I, I mean, I wish there was an argument. Yeah. Ah. Loving the, the Brundle show. In the ideal world, I'd have the real stars of the Lucasphere Brundle, Babs, Eki, KMG, Dennis Dale, Matt Vey, Claire J, Ash, Duvid, Otto Paul, Halsey, and Jen sit down and talk amongst themselves. Figure out, wouldn't it be worth joining forces and creating panels like the good old days? But you know why people don't do that? One, those of us in the distance sphere have difficulty sustaining relationships. Uh, two, many people in this list have better things to do with their lives than going on live streams. All right? Uh, I do shows when I feel like it's in my self-interest to do a show. I haven't done a show for six days because I just didn't feel like it. Uh, for many people, it's simply not in their interest to go on and provide entertainment for people. I always felt that Brundle and Dennis were the more poignant male voices. Out with the old, in with the new. Luke was never indispensable. He's just a quirky, point and laughable guy with a YouTube account. Managed to attract a few interesting people that snowboard into attracting more interesting people. But as an intellectual, he is wholly lukewarm. And his shortcomings eventually pushed all the interesting people away and himself further down the path of de his destiny becoming the next Andy Worski. Uh, what uh, drove all the interesting people away were their own self-interest. And then, yeah, maybe some of my own uh, foibles had something to do with it. But uh, who, who has managed to sustain a panel, a, a group show, on the, the distant right. It's not easy to do. The connective tissue here between big T trauma, acute, and little t trauma, chronic, developmental, was attachment theory, a framework developed by John Bowlby, a researcher who had influenced Vanderkolk during the Harvard Trauma Study Group years. Scientifically, the expansion was sound, but there were unintended effects. Broadening the scope of trauma to encompass both acute events and developmental stressors opened up a situation in which anyone so inclined could claim trauma. In the year after the DTD defeat, Vanderkolk buckled down to finish a book he hoped would bring his theoretical model to a wider public. I wanted to write something along the lines of Viktor Frankl's Man's Search for Meaning, something a smart 22-year-old could read and think, I want to go to medical school to become a researcher in psychiatry, he told me. In 1994, he had published a paper in the Harvard Review of Psychiatry titled The... So looking at the Republican candidates for president, at, at this point, I think that Ron DeSantis has shown himself to be the most effective governor of any of our 50 states. So I think that Ron DeSantis would be the most effective executive, the most effective president out of the Republican field. He'd be the most likely to be able to get things done. 
I would say that Vivek Ramaswamy gives me the best feelings. Right? When, when he talks, uh, he just makes me feel happy. And it's nice having this young guy in the mix. So I, I'd be absolutely fine with Donald J. Trump as the Republican nominee. I neither support nor oppose him as compared to, say, Vivek Ramaswamy or Ron DeSantis. Body keeps the score. It was his first stab at the unified theoretical model that traumatologists had long craved, containing all the pieces that would compose his 2014 book. Trauma, the paper argued, is stored as changes in the body's biological stress response, and the stress hormones... Is Vivek an empty suit? No. I mean, really, he, he would be more empty than, than Donald Trump? Uh, he's made hundreds of millions of dollars. He is very well-spoken. He published a book. He presents pretty sound arguments. Uh, I, I don't know any basis for believing that he'd be more of an empty suit than Donald Trump. Donald Trump is simply not very good at running things. I, I'd be fine with him as president because overall, the few things he did, such as reducing immigration and putting three conservative judges on the U.S. Supreme Court, aligns with my interests. Uh, I, I don't know an argument why Vivek Ramaswamy is somehow emptier than Donald Trump. I mean, there may be a good argument there. I just haven't heard it. ...released by a traumatic experience can cause chronic hyperarousal while making it less likely that the event will be stored in the declarative memory system. So England, the United Kingdom, have a originally Indian Prime Minister, Rishi Sunak, and he seems to be the most competent and capable of Britain's prime ministers for the last eight years. So I would rather have Rishi Sunak than Boris Johnson, Theresa May, or that, that Sheila that uh, Rishi Sunak replaced who only lasted about 30 days. So Vivek Ramaswamy, yeah, I, I'm fine with Vivek. Is he the Andrew Yang of 2024, representative of a competitive minority clique to replace our current one? I think we'd all prefer a president who supports our interests. And whether that person's originally from India or originally from Japan or originally from Norway doesn't nearly matter as much. Is this person going to be effective for fighting for my interests? What is Vivek's position on illegal immigration? Open the gates. I don't know his position on immigration, but given the constellation of issues on which I am aware of his views, I would suspect that he's very much an immigration restrictionist. He, it's not like he's going to say whatever he needs to do to increase immigration from India. Britain's current Prime Minister, Rishi Sunak, is doing all that he can to try to reduce immigration to the United Kingdom. So how long until supporting Vivek Ramaswamy is considered anti-Semitic? I haven't heard anything as yet. Vivek promotes a conspiracy theory. Sure, he, he promotes some. He knows how to talk to the, to the base. But uh, I'm pretty sure he is quite immigration restrictionist. He, he knows he's got he's got a charismatic manner. He knows how to speak. He knows how to connect with people. He's fun. He makes you feel good, right? He's he's a little bit like Barack Obama for people on the left, right? Barack Obama, they'd send a thrill up and down your leg, and I think Vivek Ramaswamy, you listen to him and you're on the right, he's very likely to send a thrill up and down your leg. Now, how effective 
a chief executive? Will he be? Open question. It's hard to imagine he'd be less effective than Donald Trump. Rishi Sunak, blood and soil English nationalist. Well, Rishi Sunak has simply proved to be more capable than any other conservative British politician. So I'd rather have someone who's capable and competent than just someone who shares my race. Vivek Ramaswamy, champion of the historic American nation. It may very well be that Vivek Ramaswamy will be more a champion of the historic American nation than any of the other alternative choices among Republican presidential candidates. That, that shouldn't be surprising. Uh, it seems like the, the originally Indian heads of, uh, is it uh, Google and uh, Microsoft, I assume they're fairly competent at their jobs. So God bless competency. Where are the Caucasian-looking Indians in Western politics? Well, I think it's much more important. Are they on my side? Are they promoting my interests? Are they promoting the policies and procedures that I want implemented in my country? And are they competent? Instead, the event is stored as fragmentary images or physiological sensations in the somatic memory system, which traps the traumatized person into continually reliving it, in the book, van der Kolk laid out these arguments and added his thesis on developmental trauma. The so I started listening to Vivek Ramaswamy uh, about the time I got back from Australia, so end of January of, of this year. And I'll just be honest, I like how he makes me feel. <laughs> That's not, not the, the most coherent uh, explanation for supporting a candidate, but... Rod DeSantis makes me feel awkward because he is so awkward, because he is so much at war with himself. I've been reading a great book, and you're going to say this book, 40, is stupid and gay and dumb. It's called The Six Pillars of Self-Esteem. It's by Nathaniel Brandon, who had a long-running affair with Ayn Rand. And he, he notes that when people are at ease, we see eyes that are alert, bright, and lively, a face that is relaxed and tends to exhibit natural color and good skin vibrancy, a chin that is held naturally and in alignment with one's body and a relaxed jaw. We see shoulders relaxed yet erect. Is he talking about me again? We see hands that tend to be relaxed and graceful, arms that tend to hang in an easy, natural way, a posture that tends to be unstrained, erect, well-balanced, a walk that tends to be purposeful without being aggressive and overbearing. This is Vivek Ramaswamy. Right? We hear a voice that tends to be modulated with an intensity appropriate to the situation and with clear pronunciation. That's the theme of relaxation occurs again and again. Relaxation implies that we are not hiding from ourselves and we are not at war with who we are. With Ron DeSantis, you feel a man is very much at war with the world. Chronic tension conveys a message of an internal split, some form of self-avoidance or self-repudiation, some aspect of the self being disowned or held on a very tight leash. That seems a pretty good description of Ron DeSantis. Right? Chronic tension. He's filled with these weird interfering tension patterns. Chronic tension conveys a message of an internal split, some self-avoidance or self-repudiation, some aspect of the self being disowned or held on a very tight leash. That does not apply to Vivek Ramaswamy. The book ends by walking the reader through research on somatic therapies, from yoga to EMDR to theater exercises. Aside from one editor, Vander Kolk recalls, 
None of us expected this, that it would climb and climb and climb. I still am puzzled. Okay, uh, Ricardo says blacks lack agency in American politics. They're a tool for other groups. I would say that blacks have done very well for themselves in American politics in pursuing what they see as their own group interest. So I do not see them as lacking agency, and I do not see them as primarily operating as tools for the Jews or for other groups. I think they've been uh, very capable at advancing what they see as their in-group interest. Not that it's so mysterious. Why trauma for so many? Sooner or later, there will come a time when your system of half measures fails you, when you will want to know what it all adds up to so you can finally get to the bottom of what's wrong with you. That's good, when, when you finally admit that your system of half measures has failed you. So we, we tend to go through life with just you know, a moderate amount of integrity. Right? If we exhibited less integrity, we couldn't live with ourselves. But if we exhibited more integrity, it would require some painful sacrifices that we don't want to make. Uh, we tend to go through life with a moderate amount of consciousness, but not too much consciousness because that might cause us to reflect on our lack of integrity or lack of purpose or our selfishness or ineffectiveness. And these are very uncomfortable feelings. So going through life with a higher sense of consciousness a higher sense of purpose, a more developed sense of integrity. Right, these are the pillars of self-esteem, according to Nathaniel Brandon. There will be a time when the pain of living will be so great that you will be desperate for a concept. A concept is a tool for... Yeah, the pain of living becomes so great. So usually people have to pass the age of 40 before they become willing to check out a 12-step program or psychotherapy. The pain of your life as it as your experience it has to exceed the expected pain that you anticipate receiving from psychotherapy or a 12-step program so often this happens when someone loses a job or loses a relationship has some substantial loss and they they come to the conclusion that their own process of half measures is just not getting it done that their own best efforts and best willpower you know, has resulted them in being in a very painful situation, and then they seek help. Packing edges into the chaos. Then we hold on. And the chat says every group rises at the direct expense of another group. No, not always. So Mennonites, for example, they, to the extent they impact other groups, it's through their charity. All right. So no, it's not that other groups always rise at the expense of others. They often do, but Frequently, they complement other groups. Widening trauma to include both acute and developmental stressors transformed it from a you-have-it-or-you-don't binary. And Ricardo says Vivek is a heathen because he's a Hindu. Not everyone is not even a monotheist. That's disqualifying. Well, there are some conceptions of monotheism that can be ascribed to Hinduism. Uh, Donald Trump is effectively an atheist. So why doesn't that uh, disqualify Donald Trump? I, I mean, who was the last? Oh, George W. Bush was a real believing Christian, and he may well have been the worst president we've ever had. Louis says, Vivek Ramaswamy is the dollar store version of Ross Perot. It looks like he can't afford a haircut. 
even though his only qualification is wealth. No, his only qualification wealth, that's not true. He's also a published author, and he is a formidable speaker and debater. Into a spectrum. The result is if everyone's body is keeping the score. So people are mocking me in my real life when I say that I love Vivek Ramaswamy. And they say, come on, you're, he, he's not white. And I say, I don't see race, guys. I just think that of, of all the Republican presidential candidates, he just makes me feel the best. And I, I can't lie, I can't deny how, how I, I feel and react to him. But, uh, yeah, people in my private life are shocked that Vivek is the one who I'm cranking on. What that score actually adds up to starts to get less clear. Decades of research and millions of dollars later, the heft of neuroscientific findings remains descriptive. Thousand okay, Ricardo, my question, if Vivek not being a monotheist is disqualifying, why isn't Donald Trump's effective atheism disqualifying? ...of fMRI imaging studies have shown that traumatized brains tend to activate in certain patterns, for example, with a hyperactive amygdala. But crucial theoretical questions remain. Maybe some people are helped by somatic therapy, as opposed to cognitive, behavioral, or talk therapy, because of an as-yet-to-be-elucidated biological mechanism. But which type of therapy works could also be an effect of how much... Wait, how was Barack Obama worse than George W. Bush? George W. Bush took us into two unnecessary wars, invasions, and occupations that cost America about $7 trillion. Okay, so I, I think I believe the cost of Obamacare over ten years is approximately two trillion dollars. So the senseless loss of life, uh, senseless, pointless invasions and occupations of Afghanistan and Iraq were just colossal blunders. Now, John Mearsheimer says that our military support for Ukraine is fifty times the blunder of our two thousand and three invasion of Iraq. So, by this measure, Joe Biden is. 50 times worse than George W. Bush because he has set in motion all sorts of forces that will be creating havoc in the world for many, many years to come. The patient believes in it, or how healthy the therapeutic relationship is, or how skilled the therapist is. Obama betrayed Israel and made the Iran deal. Fine, the Iran deal was in the best interests of the United States and of the Middle East. Obama gave us Black Lives Matter and Oberfeld. Yeah, there were some bad results of Obama. But to me, the invasions and occupations of Afghanistan and Iraq were far worse than anything Obama did. In other words, the van der Kolkian theories may not tell us very much more than what we already knew, that external circumstances and interactions change our bodies— that it's better to have a community to support you during hard times, that fewer people would be miserable if they were less exposed to poverty and violence, and that it's better to try to chill out. Our 2023 trauma moment has blossomed out of the scientific foundation of van der Kolk's theories, though what seems to be germinating often appears to be less his specific neurobiological model than what we might call traumatic literalism. 
If you're the type of person who gets Instagram ads for online therapy, your algorithm has doubtless ushered you toward the archipelago of hashtag attachment theory and hashtag complex PTSD. So in terms of evidence, all right, many people have endured great trauma and gone on to highly productive lives. So there doesn't seem to be much correlation between the trauma that people have endured and the quality of life they go on to make. There, you can learn how growing up in a dysfunctional family can quite literally deform your nervous system, as often through invisible traumas like parentification as through outright abuse or neglect. These ideas, leaping off the scientific legitimacy of Vanderkolk's work, and Ricardo makes a good point. The Uniparty gave us those wars in Afghanistan and Iraq. They were bipartisan, but they were bipartisan because the Democrats remembered being burned by their opposition to the 1991 Gulf War. If we'd had a different president who wasn't eager to invade Iraq, it wouldn't have happened, right? Without George W. Bush, there would have been no 2003 invasion of Iraq. If pretty much anyone else had been president, there would have been no 2003 invasion of Iraq because there was no connection between Iraq and the 9-11 attacks. There may well have been an invasion and occupation of Afghanistan, which was not nearly the disaster that invading and occupying Iraq was for the United States. Posit a ubiquity of trauma that seems to leave hardly anyone in the non-traumatized category. But the appeal of traumatic literalism is not so much its scientific rigor as its scientific sheen, which... And Ricardo says Ramaswamy's talking points are 100% focus grouped. He's playing a lane. Well, I assume he's acting in his best interests. No chance that Ramaswamy happens to hold the package of ideas he promotes. Nothing in Ramaswamy's background would point to him being in lockstep with Maggot. Well, what matters is how he acts, and he sees that his support is from the Maggot crowd. So if you get applause and support and money and status and prestige and people going, yay, 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 Vivek Ramaswamy, yay, 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 all right, you are very likely to want to keep on pleasing them. So even if everything you said is true, that's not any indication that he would be less effective a president of the United States than Donald Trump. I mean, Donald Trump is about as big a nihilist as ever occupied the office of presidency uh, that I can think of off the top of my head. And so I, I, I don't believe that uh, Vivek Ramaswamy is more of a nihilist than Donald Trump. And back to the chat. Ramaswamy's only positive role could be as a more articulate sidekick to Donald Trump, possibly. Uh, saw Ramaswamy spiel on Tucker focus group to help him target the lowest common denominator of conspiracy believers. Vivek, says Ricardo, is sharing all the danger signs of the personality, audience capture, but sometimes you want audience capture in your president, all right? You want your president to be loyal to your group's interests. And so if Vivek Ramaswamy has been captured by your group and your group's interests, why would you not be thrilled about that? Right? Audience capture may not be good for the individual at times, but is frequently good for the audience. Which seems to promise objective, graspable solutions to our defining political crises. For the past three decades, liberals have insisted that the institutions of American power, while flawed, were in essentially good shape. So I haven't done any deep dive into Vivek Ramaswamy. So the extent of my knowledge about him is a critical New Yorker article long 
long in-depth New Yorker profile, which came out, I think, at the end of 2022 and seemed to signal that he was no challenge to be Republican presidential material. Uh, but he has climbed and climbed and climbed since then. I have not read any articles about him <laughs> since then. So I've only read one lengthy New Yorker profile, and then occasionally I'll hear you know a bit here and a bit there. So I'm operating off very superficial knowledge. Play the Tucker interview of Vivek. Okay, I'll uh, cue it up. Thanks. Those for whom the status quo wasn't working out were welcome to jockey for inclusion by claiming identity-related injury. For a liberal politics of inclusion founded on claims of injury, what could be more useful than a way to turn that injury into biological trauma, something objective, observable, and measurable in the brain? In their focus on narrative, Okay, let's uh, decode Vivek Ramaswamy. Here he is talking to Tucker. Absolutely lied to us. The 9-11 Commission lied. The FBI lied. There's a federal case of victims on 9-11 that want accountability. I don't think they would have come for me if this was false. What do we know about Hunter Biden's dealings? What do we know about the truth of what happened on January 6th? What do we know about that Nashville shooter manifesto? Yes, we can handle the truth. Just give me the hard truth. It feels like we're on the cusp of chaos. Oh, there's something going on. Yeah. I, mean, I think we're like in a 1776 moment in this country. We are driving Russia further into China's arms as we arm Ukraine, further strengthening what I see as the single greatest military threat. We are dependent on a tiny... Okay, so the most important international issue of our time is Ukraine. I am all for removing financial and military support for Ukraine. And uh, Vivek Ramaswamy, to the best of my knowledge, is better than anyone on Ukraine. He, he's saying that our military and financial support for Ukraine is a payoff on the bribe that Ukraine gave to Hunter and Joe Biden, which is pretty funny. Any island nation off the southeast coast of China for our entire modern way of life. I will not send our sons and daughters to die over somebody else's nationalistic dispute. End the Ukraine war, reduce our economic dependence on China, weaken the Russia-China alliance. I'm not sure Taiwan what is country. Okay, I agree with everything you said in the last 15 seconds. Controversial about any of that. They're a dumber group than, <laughs> than the foreign policy Republicans. Where are we now? There's a deeper... I agree with uh, Tucker Carlson there void and vacuum that we have to fill with an affirmative alternative vision of our own and that takes courage the first republican debate of the season is less than a week away it's next wednesday in milwaukee we have no idea what's going to happen there of course but one prediction we can confidently make is that a man called vivek ramaswamy is likely to make an impression a political outsider with a complicated name who is unaccountably rising in the polls who is this guy is he a BS artist? Is he for real? Yeah, without any analysis, without any anything rationally going on in my head, I just like this guy. <laughs> I just, I get excited about this guy. I haven't talked about that yet because I'm a little embarrassed and because I have no factual, rational, cognitive basis for this. I just hear this guy. It's like I went to see the movie Flashdance when it first came out. And I love the movie Flashdance. I came out, this is going to be a hit. It just makes me feel something. I know the critics say Cocaine Bear is a crummy movie, and I haven't seen it yet, but it sounds hilarious. I want to see Cocaine Bear, and I want to see Vivek Ramaswamy as president of the United States. Is that so wrong? Am I a bad man for wanting to see Cocaine Bear and Vivek, President Vivek Ramaswamy?
We just sat down with him for an hour and found him one of the best versed voices in policy we talked to in a long time. That was a surprise. This is a conversation worth watching. Here it is. Vivek, thanks for joining us. It's good to be here. So um, you, the other day, made a comment about 9-11 in which you suggested that the U.S. government had not been wholly forthcoming about what happened that day, that there had been lying uh, by the federal bureaucracies. That seems obviously true. Um, yes, there were a lot of flaws in the 9-11 Commission report. There was a great book on the 9-11 Commission report by a Washington Post reporter which uh, detail many of the flaws. So I, I, I agree with Tucker here. The response was unbelievable. It was immediate. You were attacked as a conspiracy monger, as a lunatic, but not just by the left. Also Louis says Vivek has zero chance of mainstream appeal. The only point of backing this kind of outsider is to amplify an issue that is being ignored. I don't think so. I think this guy is uh, quite likable and compelling. So by the goons at the Wall Street Journal editorial page wrote a whole piece about how you disqualified yourself by even asking that question. What were you saying mm -hmm. and why was the reaction as fierce as it was, do you think? It was fascinating, Tucker. It was, I've had many of these moments in the campaign where they said, this is the campaign ender. This is over. He just blew it. This is one of them. So, so this is like the, the fourth or fifth of them. Come on, guys. This guy's got a lovely smile. How can you not support him? Those, but... But what was interesting about it was, right, this was not a left-wing chorus, right? This was mostly actually a right-leaning chorus. I and mean, Mike Pence, and he was deeply disappointed. Chris Murphy, this Democratic Center guy, says something very similar to Mike yes. Pence. Yeah, so between Mike Pence and Chris Christie, I prefer this MAGA, America First nationalist approach by Vivek Ramaswamy. And so it's fascinating. It says there's something going on here. So in fairness, Tucker, I didn't suggest it. I explicitly said that the government absolutely lied to us. Yeah. The 9-11 Commission lied. The FBI lied. Now, am I, is this a core point of my campaign? No, it's not. I actually went on a comedy show where some guy asked me, was the moon landing fake? I said, I think it was real. Then he asked me, did the government tell us the truth about 9-11? I said, no, they did not. This guy's great. He's great on the moon landing. He's great on the 9-11 Commission. So, so in response to a question, I'm going to answer honestly. Yeah. And the thing... I had in mind was the facts. There's this guy, Al Bayoumi. <laughs> now, re re rewind back to 9-11 and the pre-9-11 day. Think of how ludicrous this story is. And Ricardo says, why would I vote for brown Trump when I'm still allowed to vote for white Trump? You would vote for brown Trump if you thought he was more in your best interest, if you thought he might be more effective and you thought he might have more energy. Like Donald Trump would spend six, seven, eight hours a day as president of the United States watching TV. I don't think Vivek Ramaswamy would. He's got more energy. He's more compelling. He's got more life. He's got more charisma. I think he'd be more effective than Donald Trump. A 42-year-old graduate student, and there's nothing wrong with being 42 and going back to school. My dad went back to school much later in life, but he's a 42-year-old graduate student who receives the two terrorists, two of the terrorists who flew planes into buildings in the United States of America, not that long later, receives them at the airport in LA, takes them to his house, spends lots of time with them, integrates them into the community. But the account for what he said happened was he met them randomly at the airport. That doesn't make much sense on the face. Just kind of it. happened to be at LAX and no, exactly. You guys and hey, Saudi. you know, you you look like uh, you look like guys we might get along with, and then suddenly become fast friends at the airport so much so that he takes them up. So it's a little suspicious. 
But hey, the 9-11 Commission and the FBI looked into it. And at the time, they said. And the chat says that Vivek looks like Ben Shapiro with Trump levels of bronzer. He's got a much more pleasing personality than Ben Shapiro. He's got a more pleasing voice, a more pleasing manner. His account is accurate. Yeah, it sounds legit. It sounds super legit, right? Now, there was some hanging out in LAX. Now, these guys came from Saudi Arabia. Does this guy who received them have any ties to Saudi Arabia? That's where they landed. But now, 20 years later, in 2021 and 2022, the FBI quietly declassifies documents. And they have to. 20 years later is the deadline. That suggests that, oh, wait a minute. They did know, actually, that this guy was a Saudi intelligence operative. Interesting how that works. Just slips that right under there 20 years later. Now, there are real consequences for this right now because there's a federal case of families of victims on 9-11 that want accountability, that are determining answers. So they're suing the Saudi government. And the case turns on whether or not this is true. Because you know those attackers were from Saudi Arabia. The Bush administration, you'd have the 9-11 commission, bipartisan. You have the fact. So I would rather go to an Indian dentist than a white dentist or a Jewish dentist if the Indian dentist provided superior service at uh, superior prices. I'd rather go to an Indian lawyer, an Indian accountant, Indian anything, if or black anything, if they provide superior services at a superior price. And does Vivek Ramaswamy have a deal for you? Act of the FBI, CIA, everybody saying that no, this guy was really just acting independently here, but now we say is a Saudi intelligence operative. There's really the question of whether the Saudi Arabia owes damages to these families. So this is a relevant question. So is this the main point I'm focused on in my campaign? No, I'm not. We have to focus on the future of the country. But if I'm asked a question and I answer honestly based on the facts, I don't think they would have come for me if this was false, if this was ludicrous. Of course. They're well, lying is never punished. Lying is never punished. But it's speaking the truths you're not supposed to speak. That's what actually attracts the immune response, the anaphylaxis. But why? I mean, I, you made, a, yeah. I thought, a really wonderful point in one of your responses to this, in which you said it's not okay for the government to lie to us, period, in a yep. democracy. It's poison, and it, and it corrodes the system that we revere, democracy. So, um, but why would... Yeah, see this nice, alert posture? So... Here, let me let me show you the full screen here. So, look at uh, look at poor Tucker here. Not much neck, all right. He he doesn't have, you know, his head leading his whole spine into length. His head's just kind of plumping down, compressing his spine. But look at Vivek. He's got he's got a neck. His head is poised at the top of his spine. The Wall Street Journal take time out of its busy schedule of defending low capital. And notice that when Tucker talks, his head's tipping back and pressing his neck. Well, gains taxes to attack you over this. You know, what's interesting is I think that there's a bipartisan consensus in this country right now that we, the people, we can't handle the truth. Yeah. It's like Jack Nicholson at the end of the movie, right? Yeah. And uh, Ricardo says, you're going to have to get over... <laughs> <laughs> Ramaswamy's use of the hands. Everyone is aping Trump's hands now. Ron DeSantis is copying them move for move. Yeah, Donald Trump does have very powerful body language. You can't handle the truth. You need me on that wall. My view, my basic view in this campaign is no, we don't need you on that wall. And yes, we can handle the truth. COVID-19, what was the origin? 
What did we know about the vaccines before we mandated them? What did we know about Hunter Biden's dealings before we systematically suppressed that story? What do we know about the truth of what happened on January 6th? What do we know about that Nashville shooter manifesto, the transgender individual who shot up a bunch of people in a Christian school? That's why I went to Nashville not that long ago, because Bill Lee, a Republican governor of Tennessee, now wants to pass a red flag law in Tennessee without releasing that manifesto. The whole point is the public can't handle the truth. And so I had offline discussions. I mean, we're talking with, you know, big donors in the Republican Party, big folks in media, executives and otherwise who said, hey, listen, okay, even if what you're saying is true, this is not helping you. I said, why is that the first question that should go through my mind, right? I mean, I, personally. Yeah, this is, he's got a good personality. Bernard says, it's interesting that Tucker is not spending his time complaining about Fox. He just moves on, continues producing content. And I believe he's probably raising vast sums of money to, you know, launch a more formidable operation. I think the way I'm running this campaign is I'm not thinking about what's helping me or not before I say it. So far, at least that actually, that approach does seem to be helping me. Yes. <laughs> We're doing all right. But even if I weren't, I'd rather lose some election. All right. Uh, Ricardo says Trump wouldn't even be Trump without the hands. Your fight was more about the way he held his hands when he said it than the words themselves. Yeah. Our body language and who we are is far more important than the actual words that we say. Then to play some political snakes and ladders of what we're supposed to say and I think that that's really one of the questions at issue today, as it was in 1776. Do we believe that the public can be trusted with the truth? Whatever the truth is, just give me the hard truth. I mean, I, I have a friend of mine, her father died recently. She talked about actually her experience of her father had. What does the Alexander technique say about talking with your hands? Well, it would want you to do everything that you want to do as easily as possible with this literal tension. So the Alexander technique doesn't say anything about whether you should talk with your hands or not. It's if you want to use your hands in communication, then do you use them gracefully and effectively? If you would rather not use your hands, but you're compulsively using your hands, and the Alexander technique would help you to notice how you're responding to a stimuli with a response that does not serve you. So the Alexander technique is a way of noticing how you respond to a stimuli, such as the stimulus to want to use your hands, and then gives you some space, creates the ability to choose how you respond to a stimulus. And so you can better align your responses to stimuli with your best interests. Having heart attacks even when she was a kid, he went on to live as far as he did. But she said the one thing she just wanted from the doctors, from her dad, etc., is, you know, she's 12 years old at the time. I can handle the truth. Just Are Vivex hands graceful? They're okay. Uh, he could definitely improve his presentation. So when you're using your hands, all right, there's a box that's like this, and you want to keep all your movements within this fairly limited uh, box. And so he, he waves them around kind of ineffectively, and it, it doesn't, it often does not enhance his message. But if you want to make a point like this, point one, point two, point three, stop, all right? Using my hands within this certain narrow box, that's a powerful way of communicating at the appropriate time. But if I'm just waving my hands around like he does, it's not, uh, it's not helping him. Just tell me, like, is my dad going to die? Is my dad likely to die before he goes in for the next procedure? Don't just tell me he's going to live because you think that's what I need to hear. Just tell me the truth and I can handle the truth. I think most of us are this way. I think we as free human beings 
badly, what makes us human beings and not animals is the belief that we can believe in something bigger than ourselves and that we can handle the truth from those who are in power. And I think that's the moment we live in today. It was the moment of the American Revolution that we, the people, can be trusted. And I think we now live in a moment where the government, and not just the government, but a broader establishment in our country, believes that citizens of this nation cannot be trusted with the truth. So when you describe the way that people who run the country feel about voters, you're describing the way parents treat small children. That's right. That's right. I think that that's actually worth understanding because there's one school of thought that says the government and the people in charge are fundamentally hostile to the people. If only it were so easy, yeah. actually. I think the reality of what's going on is far more dangerous, where the people who are in charge have actually what they think of as a benevolent view of the people, that we're doing what's actually right for you, for me, for the populace at large. And then if you look at this throughout history, Tucker, for most of human history, that's how it's been done. For most of human history, before 1776 in the old world, the vision was the people cannot be trusted to sort out their own differences. <laughs> one person, one vote? That's, that's such a laughable idea. It has to be church leaders and labor leaders and business leaders that decide in the back of palace halls what's right for the rest of society at large. And then we had this weird departure in 1776 that said, no, 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 no. Actually, we the people can be trusted in a system where every person's voice and vote counts equally with free speech and open debate in the public square, whatever it is. Sometimes we might get it wrong. Sometimes we get it right. But whatever it is, that's the way we do things in this new thing we call the United States of America. But then every once in a while, and we're in one of those moments, that ugly monster rears its head again that says, no, no, no. So one thing that, that comes across to me about Vivek Ramaswamy is that uh, he's at ease with himself. And that's a good thing because I feel at ease when I listen to him. And so people who are at war with themselves, people who have all sorts of weird interfering tension patterns, right? They will make you feel ill at ease. No, no, The people can't be trusted. It has to be now in the back of palace halls, in the back of three-letter government agencies in Washington, D.C., or in the back of BlackRock's corner office on Park Avenue in Manhattan, wherever it is. It's that the enlightened have to make sure that the public is protected from the truth, just like a parent protects a child. And I think it's that parental instinct. It's not the kidnapper's instinct, right? It's not the guy who wants to, you know, kidnap and kill the child. No, it's actually almost what they think of as being the instinct of a parent who's doing for you what's better for you than you know for yourself. And I think that's what gives it actual staying power because it's... So he's articulating a populist position here. The elite position is that uh, you can't trust the people with a lot of truths. He's giving a more populist position. It's not what somebody thinks of as evil who's committing evil. They think of it as actually a moral obligation to the public, which explains the bipartisan nature of when somebody speaks the truth about what really happened on 9-11. No, hush, keep that under the rug. Because Republican or Democrat, we know that the people can't be trusted for that. It's not good for the yeah, people. The, the children are listening. Lower your voice. The kids are listening. Yeah. Do you get the sense as you travel the country, talk to people, speak, um, that we're on the, the, it feels like we're on the cusp of chaos? I think we're on the cusp of something. I'd like to think of it as a revolution in a positive sense of that word. I think that, you know, I try to be an optimist at but times. You, you feel like this is... Oh, there's something going on. Yeah. I, mean, I think we're like in a 1775, spring of 1776 moment in this country, actually. I think that people are hungry. Now, the form I want to see it play out in is reviving those shared ideals that unite us, that set the nation into motion in 1776, that I think are innate to our nature as human beings, as Americans. 
I think that there's a hunger for a revival of those ideals. That's where we are. But there's a lot of ways that energy could go. The way I would like to play my small role in helping channel that energy, it's not all going to be done by the U.S. president, but there's a role to play, is to channel that energy towards a positive revival of that which unites us across our diverse attributes or divides. But if it doesn't go that way, there's a there's a dam that's going to break and, and the river's going to go somewhere. I hope it leads towards a national revival rather than, you know, other places where this could go. How concerned are you about an economic, like a real economic reset in the next year? Quite concerned. I think that. Okay, you asked for it. Here you go. Let's get an Alexander Technique analysis of Adolf Hitler. Okay, all the videos I see of him on YouTube are copyright. So, okay, so we've got here the head nicely balanced on top of the torso, right? We've got the, the hand gesture within the, the, the square of power, right? I, I guess I probably shouldn't imitate some of his, his gestures. Uh, tremendous amount of uh, tension and strain, but is probably congruent to the topics that he's talking about. Okay, so again, head head balanced on top of the torso, head balanced on top of the torso, head nicely balanced on top of the torso. Lots of length here in his neck and throat, so he's not compressing down. Okay, again, head balanced on top of the torso, head balancing on top of the torso. Uh, lots of upward direction here. So I, I don't see the head tipping back, compressing the spine. So again, his neck looks to be free here. Wearing those big collars probably adds an incentive for, for, you know, some length in his neck. Okay, so again, the head's not tipping back too much here, compressing his spine. He must have had fairly good use that he was able to effortlessly speak for such, you know, vast periods of time. So in, in these pictures, he seems to have pretty good use of himself. He's not uh, tipping his head back compressing his, his spine. <laughs> Please demonstrate a Roman salute and point out where attention could be found in such a, a pose. <laughs> okay, so you want to have, what you want to do is you want to have length in your shoulders. So when you're, you're raising your, your arm up, right, many people want to, there'll be some tension and compressing, but you don't have to tense and compress your shoulders when you raise your hand up. So I'm using my left hand deliberately so I don't get into any trouble here. But okay, let's say that you're, you're, uh, you're pledging to tell the truth, the whole truth, and, and nothing but the truth, right? This is an American pledge, right? Very American what I'm doing now. There's no need to compress in the, the shoulder. You raise your right hand, you know, I solemnly swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. Or if you're an observant Jew, you say, I affirm that I will tell the truth, the whole truth. And you want nice, you know, width here. You don't want your shoulder compressing into your neck. You want it maintained. So many people, when they start to raise their hand, 
to swear to tell the truth, all right, they start tightening and compressing. So you want you want as much freedom here, the head, neck, back, shoulder relationship. And then you want to think about the length from your shoulder to your elbow, from your elbow to your wrist, and you don't want to have unnecessary tension, you know, anywhere. So you can think about expansion and lengthening rather than compressing and pulling down. He looks like he's standing in constant tension. Well, at least his head is balanced on top of his torso. When he's speaking, he's speaking about very tense themes. So it would not be congruent with the subjects he's talking about if he's just uh, completely at ease and self-deprecating. That 2024 is going to be a year where I, it's not going to take a lot of guts for me to make this prediction because I'll tell you why it's easy to make. We're on the cusp of a major economic downturn next year. We live under conditions of a deeply inverted yield curve. I mean, these are topics that may put people to sleep and so we don't have to Can you explain get into means? it. Yeah, I mean, it's basically you would expect in the long run, right? Long run interest rates on long run bonds are higher compared to interest rates on short-run bonds because there would be higher risk of being repaid back. That's how things are supposed right. to work. There are a wide range of factors that can occasionally cause that to tilt in the other direction. We're in one of those conditions right now where the interest rates on short-term bonds are significantly higher than they are on long-run bonds. And every time that's happened in the last 40 years that has predicted a recession that followed in the year or so that came later. And there's lots of complicated reasons for why, and economists can debate it. But what's not debatable is that that's exactly what happens. That's where we are now, which is why we're, I think, in the calm before the storm, Biden will put up low unemployment numbers. Well, that misses the point that we have a deeper structural deficiency where our real problem is there are twice as many jobs open as there are people looking for work. Right. That's the actual deeper structural failure as it relates to the yeah, labor market. People have stopped looking for work. People have stopped looking for work. Absolutely. I mean, people are being paid more or have been habituated more to staying at home than to go to work. People also don't have the skill sets required to actually show up to work because they have four-year college degrees that were subsidized by the U.S. Department of Education without actually having the skill sets that many employers badly need in order to grow their business, whether it's a big business or a small one. Okay, I want to finish off this uh, New York Magazine profile on decoding trauma. We've just got uh, eight minutes left. That is, on recovering and integrating declarative memories, the battle lines of the 80s and 90s trauma culture wars were staked out along clear lines. If you were a feminist or an anti-war activist, you invoked trauma. If you were a conservative, you didn't. But today's literalization of trauma is politically promiscuous. In fact, rather than treating trauma as an ideological weapon of the left, now the right wants in on it too. Take the 2016 memoir Hillbilly Elegy by new right icon J.D. Vance, which invokes the neurobiological impact of the chronic stress he endured in Appalachian poverty to show how rural white voters have been abandoned by liberal elites. Take the lamentations about atrophying manhood and falling sperm counts. Call it what you want, but the core idea is always shaped like trauma. Once we were whole, but now we're not. Now we suffer from a sickness we struggle to...
Guys, it's raining here. Hurricane Hillary is on its way. Please keep me in your thoughts and prayers. Grasp or name. Yet this wound provides our new identity, at once the thing that gives us the right to speak and the only thing we have left to say when we do. Underwritten by its literalism, our trauma is the guarantor of what we believe we are owed. In this sense, Van <laughs> Bernard says, when I think of Icon, <laughs> J.D. Vance is who immediately comes to mind. <laughs> Kolk's ascent has landed him squarely back in the problem that defined his position in the memory wars. If he were to disavow the excesses of how his work is being popularized in order to preserve its scientific bona fides, it would mean taming its viral uptake. Still, during the retreat in the Berkshires, it wasn't always clear how van der Kolk's neurobiological model connects to some of the interventions he champions. Take psychodrama, a treatment in his arsenal that literally restages scenes of family trauma. Groups of patients role-play family members, while the patient stands up for themselves in the way they wished they could have done at the time. The justification for psychodrama is the idea that restaging the trauma is a somatic treatment, as opposed to talk therapy. But for all of van der Kolk's genuinely innovative neurobiological work, does it really follow that defending yourself against someone pretending to be your parent is any more biologically based than talk therapy? The core mechanism of talk therapy, after all, is learning to notice when you are reacting to the therapist as if they were your parent. This, too, is a process that changes the brain. So Alexander Technique is great for helping you to redirect your reactions, right? Reacting to your parent. So I went through much of my life just hating anyone who reminded me of my father. So that got me into trouble with all sorts of people in positions of power such as rabbis and employers. Brain. In November 2017, the acting head of the trauma center, Joseph Spinozola, resigned. The next month, the head of the center's parent organization, the Justice Resource Initiative, sent a staff-wide email with JRI and hashtag MeToo in the subject line, communicating that he had terminated Spinozola for sexual harassment. Soon, Vanderkolk was fired too. In an email to the Boston Globe, JRI head Andy Pond said Vanderkolk had created a hostile work environment. His behavior could be characterized as bullying and making employees feel denigrated and uncomfortable. Online, Fans of The Body Keeps the Score fretted that the person who had given them a language for their trauma might be inflicting trauma himself. As one wrote on Reddit, It feels like a hiccup in my recovery. I feel like I have trusted someone who turned out to be another abuser. According to Vanderkolk, he had left the trauma center in the hands of Spinozola, a trusted mentee, during the years in which he was toiling to finish his book, Spinozola began to harass female colleagues, Vanderkolk said, but he hadn't known about it. He just wasn't around. He denied ever bullying trauma center employees. Rather, he said, the senior staff had quit with him 
and reassembled into several new organizations, including the Trauma Research Foundation. JRI declined to comment on the situation. At the retreat, I asked Vanderkolk if he finds it notable that his firing was justified using therapy speak, the trauma creep that the body keeps the score is sometimes accused of having facilitated. I'm a clinician, he said. I'm not really interested in these kinds of sociological or political questions. When I pressed, he got annoyed. This stuff about cancel culture or people saying they're traumatized for any little thing, that's not what my book is about. If people happen to use it for that, that's their problem, but leave me out of it. As in the debacle of the memory wars, he is adamant that he not be held responsible for whether or how his work is being misused. Throughout the week-long retreat, it sometimes seemed as if no event was too geopolitically vast or historically complex to be apprehended through trauma. On the first night, Vanderkolk's staff gathered with him in his suite. There was the woman who ran an international branch of the TRF focused on developing trauma workshops in the Global South, and a psychotherapist who told me she had invented the concept of sexual grief. Night one had gone great, they agreed, as the conversation whirled out to the Trauma Foundation's vital work worldwide and the work remaining to be done. The war in Ukraine, global warming, the refugee crisis, famine, guerrilla violence, the great wheel of history screaming out for increased trauma intervention. And Ricardo says trauma is a leftist weasel word. It is the medicalization of sin. If you ever find yourself discussing trauma unironically, you should reevaluate your life choices. It was hard to think of a problem to which trauma therapy wouldn't be the answer. Over the course of six days, in small groups, in evening exercises, over lunch, many people described their pain. One night, we stood in a circle as everyone took turns stepping into the center. Then the group would say their name with delight at their existence. It was supposed to replicate the feeling of being a child basking in their parents' love. People cried. I cried. The next day, Leisha Skye led us outside to walk across a field toward a partner while keeping eye contact. One man thanked his activity partner, whom he'd hugged at the end, for a healing experience. When his partner took the mic, she said she had felt coerced into the hug, then burst into tears. It was like something else had happened to her, she said. Later, I chatted with a Canadian minister who was there to improve his counseling skills. The science is interesting, he said, lowering his voice. But I'm starting to wonder if I'm traumatized enough to be here. On the last day, I spoke with one of the retreat's assistants, a German physiotherapist with sad, kind eyes. He had been terribly abused as a child, he told me. He spent years in pain. But understanding the new science of trauma through Vanderkolk's work had changed his life. He explained how trauma can be trapped in the body as a reflexive wince stuck in time, manifesting as a shoulder spasm, for example, when someone hears a word that reminds them of the traumatic event. He used to have those, he said, but not anymore. 
We're at the beginning of a new scientific epoch, he told me, of understanding the truth about trauma. Finally, humanity can hope to free itself from the cycles that have dragged us through eons of war, violence, and poverty. Someday soon, he told me, finally, we will all become clean. Ah, oh, thank God. Ricardo says, my father committed a bunch of sin and that really harmed me. This is all you need to say, then move on. All the sin in the world is just killing my mojo. Get over it. All right, uh, there's a terrific little podcast called Psych. 15 episodes on the basics of psychology. Here are some selections from Chapter 14 on Clinical Psychology. Paul Bloom speaking with David Pizarro. David Pizarro went to Pacific Union College, a Seventh-day Adventist college in the Napa Valley where I grew up and my father taught for three years from 1977 to 1980. Freudian therapy was psychoanalysis, psychoanalytic therapy earlier on, but there's others, so I'll... I'll... All right, this is Paul Bloom speaking from Yale. I'll ask you, what's, uh, what's your favorite therapy? What a question. It's like, what's your favorite flavor of ice cream? I think I like a CBT. <laughs> um, I have always been drawn to that kind of therapy, sometimes referred to as existential therapy, a form of talk therapy where you and your therapist talk about sort of big problems of existence. I, I suspect that this is because whatever malaise I've had in the mental domain has generally been about things like, is my life worth living? <laughs> is, is, is it going to matter when I die? My uh, big fears of death. Therapy for privileged people. It's therapy for privileged people. So, uh, But I think that it is a good world if that's the therapy that people need the most. It would mean that we're all in a good enough position to be deeply reflective about meaning in life. Yeah, that's a nice hope for the future. <laughs> right. But I've seen in, in people whom I know and love, I've seen cognitive behavioral therapies work wonders. And specifically for disorders like phobias, generalized anxiety, even obsessive compulsive disorder. So I did uh, cognitive behavioral therapy. That is so much work. That is just challenging and hard work. All right. There's not a lot of uh, just you know, sharing your feelings and your trauma. The kinds of therapies that attack that anxiety category. Cognitive behavioral therapy really seems to have good outcomes for a lot of those patients. Yep. My, my favorite therapy to watch in movies and TV and to think about is Freudian therapy because you get into these dreams and these oh, yeah. complex... Oh, Sopranos. Oh, amazing. These great narratives about why Tony has his panic attacks and all of this. But my intuition is the same as yours. If I, if I was struggling with, with a real specific problem, uh, obsess an obsession, unrealistic fears, anxiety, sadness... I would, I would also seek out cognitive behavioral therapy. It seems to have the most bang for the buck. The behavioral part refers to the sort of theories that are uh, based on sort of Skinnerian theories of, say, operant conditioning, where you reward behaviors to make them increase, punish them, make, to make them go away. Exposure therapy, which kind of works on classical conditioning principles. And the cognitive part is often kind of gets to get your head, get you thinking right, to get you out of in good sort of habits of, think, of thought, to avoid dwelling, obsessive dwelling on bad ideas, to, to question your unrealistic thoughts. If Freudian therapy is so mysterious with the sort of bearded psychiatrist, you know, and, and looking down, taking notes while a person's lying on the sofa talking about their dreams, CBT is you're in a brightly lit room across the table and the person says, here's what we're going to do to help your problem. And here's why we're going to do it. There's nothing hidden. It's just straight. Here's the techniques we're going to work on together when I assign you homework. I'm not going to answer any question. I'll give you papers to read to see it. And it tends to be quite successful. Yeah. In fact, I had experience with this lack of mystery slash effectiveness of cognitive behavioral therapy. When I was in college, I took a course, I believe it was called Behavior Change. And one of the assignments was to pick a behavior that we wanted to change. So mine, uh, Paul, was that I wanted to stop cursing. <laughs> 
<laughs> so this is a story of an unsuccessful intervention, I guess. This is, we're not making right. So when you grow up as a Seventh Day Adventist, cursing is like a really bad thing. Uh, when you grow up as an Orthodox Jew, uh, cursing is not encouraged. It's not considered a good thing, but it's not you know, one of the primary things that you you need to work on. So Pizarro is probably influenced here by a Seventh-day Adventist upbringing. Any claims about long-term effectiveness <laughs> here. Uh, but what I learned to do was every time I cursed, I would write it down. And within a couple of weeks, I stopped cursing completely. What it was doing was interrupting the automatic nature of my thought processes. And, and it worked. Good, good. Temporarily, but Temporarily, good. But, um, <laughs> but we, what I realized really in my existential therapy is that life without cursing is meaningless. <laughs> your, your, your therapist battled one another. <laughs> yeah. And so, and we're talking about therapies and, and then there's drugs. So some very large proportion of people are on some sort of drug for depression or anxiety or, or some other disorder. Some, some fairly large proportion of people listening to us are, are currently taking such a drug. And it's not like you take a pill, your problem goes away. It takes a while often to figure out the right drug for the right person. Many of these drugs have side effects. Sometimes a drug works for a while and stops working. But on balance, drugs for depression, anxiety do, do pretty well, typically in sort of concert with some sort of talk therapy like CBT. So we've been talking now about these therapies and these drugs, and I think it'd be irresponsible for us not to say that they do work on balance. But the flip side of this is clinical psychology, I think, is at a fairly primitive state. And in some way... Um, I'm going to put that a bit stronger. I think psychology has had its success stories uh, where we really helped explain things. We've talked about some of the success stories so far. I'm not sure if clinical psychology has been a success story in the same way. I'm not sure that in the last 20 or 30 years, there's been um, huge developments. So I want to go back to, to Incel. So Incel said, I'm head of NIMH. I'm going to National Institute of Mental Health. I want to sort of have a much more scientific foundation for clinical studies. And after he left NIMH, he confessed that it was not the success he wanted it to be. So, so here's the quote, and it's very striking to me. I spent 13 years at NIMH really pushing on the neuroscience and genetics and mental disorders. And when I look back on that, I realized that while I think I succeeded getting a lot of really cool papers published by cool scientists at fairly large costs, I think 20 billion, I don't think we moved the needle in reducing suicide, reducing hospitalization, improving recovery for the tens of millions of people who have mental illness. And his predecessor at NMIH, Steve Hyman, had a similar quote. He said, no new drug targets or therapeutic mechanisms of real significance have been developed for more than four decades. And I find that just shocking, but I think it's true. I think if you, if you have a mental illness now, your treatment... Yeah, there have been no new drugs for mental illness of any substantial merit all right, developed in the last 40 years would not be substantially different than if you had it 10 years ago or 20 years ago. Some of the drugs are a bit better. I think some of the talk therapies are a bit better. They intend to incorporate things like mindfulness meditation now with some advantage, but it's not, it's not a revolution. It's depressing, but I, I agree. And in fact, as far as I'm aware, many mental illnesses have, have increased. So right now it seems to me that, for instance, many more of my students suffer from depression and probably ADHD than have in the past. Suicide rates, they've probably gone up. It's a real question as to why, what's going on. I think one hint comes from the fact that, you know, when we talk about the diathesis stress model of these diseases, that stress part really does matter. And in a world where the conditions of life might change for the worst, we're going to see mental illness incidents go up. So I think the COVID pandemic, for instance, took yeah. its toll on men. Okay, I'll play a little bit more here. Vivek is like, you are The inflation my numbers, they'll point to saying, hey, the rate of inflation is coming down. Inflation's cumulative. Things are still 16, 20% more expensive 
than they were in 2020, and wages have not gone up in the same way over the same period. And so there are deep structural issues with our economy. I mean, the national debt, interest payments are going to be the biggest portion and line item of the federal budget very soon. All right, this is episode 15 from the podcast Psych. This episode is about happiness. For these psychopathologies, if we treat them as diseases, another is that insurance companies will pay uh, for treatment <laughs> if we label them as diseases. But this is not without controversy. There are some people who don't believe that the medical model is the right way to think about mental illness at all. So you can imagine a couple of extremes. One extreme says, well, you know, Alzheimer's and Parkinson's, which are in the DSM. Well, all of the rest of the mental disorders we're discussing, schizophrenia, bipolar depression, unipolar depression, and more things too, personality disorders, which we'll talk about and so on, they're all exactly the same as Parkinson's and Alzheimer's. If you looked hard enough, you could localize the physical problem in the brain. We could study its causes, but it's in some way you should think of it like you think of a disease like, like cancer. That's one extreme. The other extreme is what we've been calling mental illness is not only just a metaphor, but it's a bad metaphor. And yeah, these are some pretty thoughtful critiques by a couple of psychologists. Ricardo says, I pray Luke is the lone survivor of this storm. I'll tell you, wait, everyone is mentally ill, confusion of sex roles. I think that's perhaps accounts for 5% of mental illness. I'd say the biggest reason for mental illness is disconnection, right? The diminishing of the family, the diminishing of a sense of community, the diminishing of a sense of racial, communal, ethnic, religious identity, the diminishing of ties that used to bind and blind us, right? The diminishing of in-group identity. I'd say that's the major, from where I stand, major cause of mental illness. All right, this is Paul Bloom, psychologist at Yale, talking to David Pizarro. I associate this view with, uh, with Thomas Zuz, and I know, I know you've done some reading of him, some study of him. Yeah, I think he's probably the most famous proponent of this idea. He wrote a number of books on it, but the most famous one being The Myth of Mental Illness. And what he argued was that yeah, these are not disease categories. He believed that it was a mistake to call psychopathologies mental illnesses. For one, he thought that this was opening the door for a sort of mistreatment of patients, like getting them into this system and treating them like patients was robbing them of their autonomy and their liberty. He, he thought that pathologizing problems like depression was ignoring the real source. He thought these were fundamentally social psychological responses to life and what might be happening in your life, but that to call it a disease was to do damage to the person. Right. We are medicalizing normal human sadness, to quote uh, one, one critic's term. So if you experience substantial loss, all right, it would be weird if you didn't feel quite sad about it. If you lose a marriage, a parent who you love, a friend, a job, a position of, of status, an investment, all right, if you suffer a substantial loss, it'd be quite weird if you weren't quite sad about it for days, weeks, even months. And who is suffering from it. And to hide the way. And this depression has an evolutionary advantage because when you go into this depression, right, when you largely withdraw from life, it gives you time to think about what happened, you know, how you can learn from it. You can conceive of plans for the future. Then you can run scenarios for how you plan to relaunch yourself into life. And you can work through whether or not these various plans of yours might be effective. So there's probably a very sane evolutionary basis for much of depression. So the, the question is, is your sadness and depression, is it adaptive or maladaptive? So a lot of sadness and depression is adaptive, most of it. But sometimes your sadness gets out of proportion. It takes on you know, a power of its own and it becomes maladaptive and then you need to get help.
ways in which you would really treat it. So he was himself a psychiatrist. It's not that he didn't believe that therapy helped. He just thought that what therapy was doing was addressing a fundamentally different kind of problem. It was just problems that people have about how to live their lives in a complicated world. Yeah. And I think, at least I'm going to come to reject that view and say that that view is mistaken. But I have to give it credit that in some cases, it's right, or it was right, and it is right. So there are a lot of examples we could think of. In the DSM-2, homosexuality was in there. Okay, and as we all know, the position on homosexuality has changed in the psychiatric establishment. God would be fine letting them in. And so at least one root of this disease model might be to not cast blame on individuals. That's nicely put. There's sort of two things on the same track. One is that sometimes it could be an insult to somebody, enormous amount of disrespect not to take them seriously, to say you're just mentally ill. But the flip side is, is sometimes it, it properly absolves them of responsibility. If you um, end up stabbing somebody because you're, you're at a hallucination that they're a monster or something, you shouldn't be holding right, the son of Sam. Exactly. Um, there are a lot of sort of people who do terrible things are or were mentally ill. So you might still lock them up to keep other people safe, but you don't hold them blameworthy the same way if you murdered somebody, you know, in a jealous rage or if you murdered somebody for money or something like that. And then there's another aspect of this. And we, we talked about this before offline, which is a point I think made kind of clearest by Johan Hari, which is in some cases we acknowledge that an experience like sadness could be a normal response to the way the world works. So, you know, if one's child has just died, just got hit by a car and died, and, and you're just miserable about it, nobody's going to say you're mentally ill. They say, oh, that's just a normal mind working in a normal way. The person might get treatment or something, but still, we don't see that in some way as any way akin to an illness or disease. But Hari argues, once you accept that, and in fact, that isn't a DSM, those sort of grief exemptions. Once you accept that, then it opens up the door for other things. So I'll quote from him. He writes, why is death the only event that can happen in life where depression is a reasonable response? Why not if your husband has left you after 30 years of marriage? Why not if you're trapped for the next 30 years in a meaningless job you hate? Why not if you have ended up homeless and you were living under a bridge? If it's reasonable to use one set of circumstances, could there be other circumstances where it's also reasonable? A lot of mental illness is probably a normal response that for whatever reason has become extreme. We're supposed to have fear and anxiety about some things because it keeps us from doing really dumb things. It's when it gets to be disruptive, and yeah. this is a word that's often used, is this becoming a problem such that it is disrupting your quote-unquote normal functioning. This is one of the things that makes me sympathetic to arguments like Zaza's. Clearly, there is a lot of interpretation and social construction about what is adaptive, and answering the question of what is maladaptive might crucially depend on what situations you're adapting to. So is the current society or culture or familial environment making it such that what you're experiencing is disruptive? The very same symptoms might not be in, in another culture. So in some cultures where you're expected to mourn for long periods of time and not do anything but mourn, this would not be a mental illness. But in cultures like ours where you maybe you're expected to get back to work within a week, if you're still grieving hard after six months. So any thoughts on Victor Frankl? Victor Frankl wrote, a great little book, Man's Search for Meaning. He was a psychiatrist who survived the Holocaust. And he makes the point that meaning is not something that we primarily construct in our own heads, but uh, it's a question that life is constantly asking us. And so this corresponds with a traditional conception that meaning exists outside of ourselves, in, in our community, in our faith, in our tribe, in our nation. And by adapting ourselves to this external source of meaning and meeting up with our responsibilities, then we can lead an, an honorable and productive life. 
illness. People might think that this is mental illness. They might call it mental illness. And that bo- it bothers me that what we describe as mental illness on this disease model might actually turn on stuff that physical diseases wouldn't. If I have a flu, it doesn't matter whether or not the society that I'm living in thinks that it's wrong to, to cough and, and sneeze. <laughs> yeah, but I would still push for a distinction. So you take somebody who uh, suffers from schizophrenia and, and is just unable to care for themselves. And I think everywhere, at every time, every place, this person is, is suffering and will be at a disadvantage. Somebody with a social phobia that they can't speak to people, somebody who has major depression, so severe they can't do anything. When you get to the extremes, the illness nature seems to be, I think, more clear, less subjective. But then you get, and you know, to be fair, it's not as if psychologists and psychiatrists haven't noticed this. You get to certain categories where there's honest debate over where, where to put them. And I'm thinking here about um, what psychologists call personality disorders. And we talked before about how, in some way, we're talking more about individual differences here. And personality disorders are a case where we can argue about what counts as normal variation and what counts as pathology. And those are such an interesting category. So what do they, what do they include? So I was diagnosed with narcissistic personality disorder in year 2000. I found it helpful. It inspired me to go back to therapy. It inspired me to realize I had a severe problem that the way that I was constructing reality was not adaptive. Borderline personality disorder, antisocial personality disorder, histrionic. So my experience with with people with borderline personality is that they are not predictable. They're, you know, unpredictably just fly into a rage. They just get flooded with, with shame and then lash out. So many mental health professionals will not treat borderline patients because it's so difficult to work with them. Personality disorder, narcissistic personality disorder. Why are you thinking of, can you define borderline and histrionic? Borderline personality disorder is when someone has a pervasive pattern of abrupt emotional outbursts, fear of abandonment, unhealthy attachment, altered empathy, instability in relationships, self-image, identity, behavior, and affect, often leading to self-harm and impulsivity. So through most of my life, I had a problem knowing who I was, and I would heavily rely on acting out attention-seeking behavior to get other people to tell me who I was. Since 2016, I feel like I've managed my life much more effectively And I'm not nearly as needy for other people to tell me who I am. But one largely relies on other people to tell one who one is. That's obviously not an adaptive approach to life. Histrionic personality disorder is a pervasive pattern of attention-seeking behavior, including excessive emotions, an impressionistic style of speech, inappropriate seduction, exhibitionism, and egocentrism. Yeah, and you could could see for all of these wider judgment calls. Should you call the cops when someone is mentally ill? Yeah, If they are a threat to other people, you should call the cops. So yesterday, I saw two homeless people fight. In some circumstances, I would call the cops if I thought there was a danger to the public. This seemed like a pretty weak fight. It uh, didn't really go anywhere. It was a man and a woman, but it wasn't like the guy was just wailing on the woman. It was more like the the woman was wailing on the guy. Or as a black woman, uh, white guy, not wearing a shirt, and I just kind of kept an eye on it when it didn't get too intense, then... I, I decided not to call the cops. But if there's a threat and hazard to the public, then I think you should call the cops. It's the proper level of seductive behavior. Well, yeah, you read the definition of histrionic personality disorder, and it sounds like a Victorian husband chastising a wanton woman. Yeah, you know? yeah. It sounds like a, a, a moral judgment that's being made on somebody. You're not the first to notice the gendered nature of yeah. some of these categories. They sort of correspond to certain negative female stereotypes. And often it's women who get the diagnosis. However, then we get to what we're both interested in talking about, which is there's one personality disorder, which is mostly male. Antisocial personality disorder 
which gets coded in slightly different ways in other classification schemes under a better known name of psychopathy. We've emphasized, you you were emphasizing earlier, something that's d deeply true and important, which is that sometimes people romanticize certain kinds of psychopathologies, but people suffer with these. With personality disorders, it's more like the people around you <laughs> suffer. That's right. It's almost part of the disorder to not think that anything is wrong with you. So these people don't seek out therapy usually. And when they are in therapy, they're extremely resistant to therapy. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. So one reason why I believe things like serious phobias or, or bipolar disorder are diseases, illnesses, is because of the distress they cause people. I don't think that's necessary, but that's necessary. You know, people are, are miserable. It destroys people's lives and they want treatment. They want to get, get better. But the personality disorders, like you say, don't fall into this. There's, I think, a debate in the field as to whether they're impossible to treat or just very difficult to treat. Right. There's no drug therapies that we know of. There's nothing like exposure therapy like we have for phobias that, that seems to work. And I don't want to say that people with these disorders aren't suffering. Of, of course, there are plenty of people who are suffering. It's just not in the same way is it part of their disorder. And then you get to something. And in fact, uh, for the narcissists, um, they probably, I don't know what the data are, but I bet some of them are fairly cheerful in their narcissism. I mean, that is a problem with narcissism. If you ask a narcissist if they have a narcissistic personality disorder, they will not only agree, they'll, they'll embrace it. They, they believe that they, in fact, are more valuable. <laughs> I read this. It was a popular treatment by John Ronson called the psychopath test. He's talking about psychopaths. And he, he goes and says that he does a lot of work and talk and gives talks on psychopathy. And often people come up to him quite concerned. And they wanted to know, you know, am, am I a psychopath? And his answer is always, if you're curious about it, if you're worried about it, uh, then you're not one. Yeah, that's a great story. But I, now I have to add my own story about this. I gave a talk at a, at a maximum security prison because Cornell has a prison education program. And among the topics that I touched on, one was psychopathy because I was giving a lecture on, on morality and, and moral judgment. And at the end of my talk, a prisoner came up to me and said something very similar. It said, is psychopathy possibly genetic? And I he said, you know, there is some evidence that there is. I said, why? Are, are you worried that you might have it? And he said, yeah. I said, well, why? He said, my mom told me that my dad had these psychopathic traits, you know, and, and, and I see him in myself. So I was very fascinated by this. So I went and I asked one of my friends who works with psychopaths. And he said exactly what you just said, which is, if they're concerned about whether or not they have psychopathy, then they're not psychopaths. But then I went to another friend, also an expert on psychopaths, and I, I told them the story. And they said, that's just what a psychopath would say. <laughs> they, would try to, they would try to convince you that they were uh, genuinely caring in their ma the manipulative nature. <laughs> that's, uh, that's psychology in a nutshell. <laughs> it really, predict both really ways is. and this is happening. <laughs> this episode of Psych is sponsored by GiveWell. When you okay. Let me fast forward through the commercial. Are disease or illnesses or, or, or enough akin to them that they should be treated in the same way? There's another question which remains, which is, are they discrete categories or are they sort of cutoffs on a continuum? And it's not the kind of thing you could answer just through sort of introspection. They're both possibilities. It's possible that we have a normal range of, of sadness, which is kind of adaptive. If you didn't feel sad, you, you probably would respond to the world in appropriate way. Sadness is good. We feel sad to different degrees. And maybe it's just some people feel a little bit sadder than, than average. Some people feel sadder than them. Some people feel sadder than them. And it just keeps on going until you have serious major depression where somebody cannot leave their bed, where somebody just, just weeps all the time. And there's just a, a continuum. And then we decide where to have a, a cutoff. So that's one possibility. Another possibility is, no, it doesn't work like that. It's like being pregnant. It's like having COVID. There's normal variation in something or another, but then there's a real category. Uh
Okay, Vivek Ramaswamy is on Fox. Six months ago, many people in this country did not even know who I was. I was polling at 0.0% in March. I'm now in a tie for second. And the reason, Eric, is that I'm speaking the truth at every step of the way. Some people in this race, they're going to present plans for incremental reform. I stand on the side of revolution, the ideals of the American Revolution. Answer the question of what it means to be an American today. And I think for too long as conservatives, we have been running from something. I am leading us to start running to something, to that American dream that still unites us as Americans. And my sense, Eric, is that our base is hungry for an affirmative vision, not just criticizing the left, though we all, including me, do plenty of that. Okay, I'm not a big fan of listening to politicians. Just two more minutes here from the podcast site. Of major depression, which is different which is something above and beyond, which is something, something special. And I don't think it's the kind of thing where you can kind of sit and think really hard and figure out what it is. But I think the view that these things lie on a continuum is getting taken increasingly seriously by scholars. That's interesting. Yeah, I suspect that whatever the truth of the matter is might vary depending on the disorder that we're talking about. I do know that there's some people who would resist the depression being just sort of like lots of sadness story because the category of depression includes real anhedonia, real lack of ability to feel anything. So it's not just that they're extra sad, it's that they're suffering from all those other symptoms that you were talking about as well that don't seem to co-occur when people are just feeling sad. But it's a hard question to answer because for one, the way in which we measure these things is often just in a continuous way, right? We have scales, so we have right. a psychopathy scale. A psychopathy okay, important article by David Brooks in The Atlantic. Why Americans are so awful to one another. Why Americans are so awful to one another. In a culture devoid of moral education, generations are growing up in a morally inarticulate, self-referential world. Yeah, so is it the lack of moral education? That's what I used to think. Now, I think this problem is primarily the result of lack of connection, because when I was devoted to moral education and like get people Torah and Bible-based values and bring people to God and religion, right? And then I realized that religious people in general, in my experiences, what I see in America today, aren't any more ethical or moral than the non-religious people around them. And what I've noticed is that people who are connected, right? People who have a good relationship with their family, good relationship with friends and good relationship with community, they consistently act in a more pro-social manner than people who don't. So I don't think the problem here is primarily one of lack of moral education. Written by David Brooks for The Atlantic. Narrated by Robert Fass for Apple News Plus. Over the past eight years or so, I've been obsessed with two questions. The first is, why have Americans become so sad? The rising rates of depression have now, David Brooks isn't so sad <laughs> because he he divorced his second wife and uh, attached himself to his research assistant and, and married her. So I assume he was carrying on, you know, a long-running affair with her. And you know, he's married to a beautiful woman, much younger than himself. And uh, I don't think he's sad, right? This, this looks to me the very picture of happiness. So... Get uh, powerful, get prestige, write books on moral character, divorce your wives, and take up with your much younger research assistant. Great path for 
meaning and happiness in life. Been well publicized, as have the rising deaths of despair from drugs, alcohol, and suicide. But other statistics are similarly troubling. The percentage of people who say they don't have close friends has increased fourfold since 1990. The share of Americans ages 25 to 54 who weren't married or living with a romantic partner. Uh, David Brooks apparently also has become a Christian, maybe not formally, but、uh, he seems to have become a Christian. So he got his second wife, I believe, to convert to Judaism to marry him. Now he's dropped her, taken up with his much younger research assistant, and adopted his research assistant's Christianity. Went up to 38 percent in 2019, from 29 percent in 1990. A record high 25 percent of 40-year-old Americans have never married. More than half of all Americans say that no one knows them well. The percentage of high school students who report persistent feelings of sadness or hopelessness. Shot up from 26% in 2009 to 44% in 2021. My second related question is, why have Americans become so mean? So my answer to these questions is, Americans have become disconnected. Why have they become disconnected? Through massive amounts of immigration and a civil rights industrial complex that makes traditional ties, traditional conceptions of the family, the traditional hero system. More and more difficult to maintain, right? For people who believe in heterosexual marriage, all right,、uh, gay marriage is an assault. It's every bit as much an assault as、um, being punched in the face, right? Let's get some Ramaswamy rapping here. Um, that's pretty impressive. I mean, Bill. Wow. Okay, so <laughs> Ramaswamy raps Eminem's "Lose Yourself," but、uh, the civil rights industrial complex has effectively overtaken our constitution. Has overtaken what we used to understand as private property. It's undertaken what we used to understand as freedom of association. It has brought government intrusion into the most You know, private parts of our lives, and as a result, we are increasingly disconnected from one another. And disconnected people hurt people. Hurt people. I was recently talking with a restaurant owner who said that he has to eject a customer from his restaurant for rude or cruel behavior once a week, something that never used to happen. Head nurse. I would say that in a homogeneous community, that is much less likely to happen. Right when everyone knows everyone. Right, that sort of behavior is less likely. It is much more disincentivized. The hospital told me that many on her staff are leaving the profession because patients have become so abusive. So, do you think those patients who are abusive are paying their way, or are they welfare recipients? I suspect that they are primarily welfare recipients. Our extreme of meanness, hate crimes rose in 2020 to their highest level in 12 years. Murder rates have been surging, at least until recently. Yeah, murder rates have surged since Black Lives Matter. Black Lives Matter rioting, disrupting America, and Fortune 500 companies or donating money to Black Lives Matter. Our elites, you know, throwing in common cause with Black Lives Matter. The media, largely going to battle on behalf of Black Lives Matter. Right, Black Lives Matter definitely winners. 
But as a result, police have been disincentivized from doing their jobs. We've had a massive increase in all sorts of crime, including violent crime. We've had a massive increase in bad driving because the police have been disincentivized from pulling over bad drivers. So as a result of Black Lives Matter and the adulation it has received from our elites, we have tailspinned into a massive increase in murder and senseless death from both bad driving and pedestrians who then get murdered by bad drivers. Same with gun sales. Social trust is plummeting. In 2000, two-thirds of American households gave to charity. In 2018, fewer than half did. The words that define our age reek of menace. So what type of people give charity? What type of people volunteer for charity, right? Uh, The most charitable cities in the United States are the whitest cities. The most diverse cities in the United States have proportionally the, the fewest volunteer operating, all right? Sydney, I think, is Australia's most diverse city, has the least volunteering going on. People are much more likely to give charity and to volunteer if they are helping their own in-group. All right, this is very exciting. We've got, we have got, Elliot Blatt, blessings to you, sir. Yeah, blessings, bro. Can you hear me? I can. What's going down, bro? Uh, I'm uh, driving. I'm on my way up to Napa. Bro, there's a hurricane. Hurricane Hillary. Not up here, not yet. Not oh, yet. Okay. okay. Hey, you know what's great about hurricanes in California is you get the warm water. The warm water comes up, so you can oh, go swimming. Sweet. Get some Beautiful. nice tropical fish. You know, it's kind of like Florida temperature water. So you got that to look forward to. Can't wait. Um. Yeah. I don't know. Uh, I'm looking. I, I don't know if it's going to come all the way up the coast or is it going to turn back? They usually turn in. Yeah, it's turning in. It's turning inland. It's not going to. It's not going to hit you. Yeah, yeah. It's too bad. That's the one thing about the East Coast that I re- that I really liked were the uh, the thunderstorms and the hurricanes. They're very refreshing, don't you think? Yeah, a little bit of excitement, and it, it does seem to clean the air. <coughs> yeah. Hey, uh, so last week I drove up to Auburn. Oh, my God. I used to live there. Yeah, I know. I was thinking about that. And um, I used to remember Auburn as being having like this little cutesy downtown, kind of old western yeah. downtown. Yeah, old, old Auburn. And I couldn't find it. I, maybe I took the wrong exit, but it was... I uh, suspect you took the wrong exit. Yeah. And I was bummed because I wanted to have like a nice country breakfast you know i got in the car at 6 a.m and i screamed up there i got there in under two hours can you believe that san francisco to auburn san francisco to auburn two hours yeah that's pretty rapid yeah yeah i was between 80 and 90 on on the freeway it's it's exciting man you rarely get to do that you can only do that early in the morning try that in a small town (laughs) <laughs> it has to be, yeah, otherwise. Uh, so, yeah, a lot of country music. We've got two new songs now. We've got the Small Town, and we've got the other one, the Richmond song. Yeah, yeah, the Richmond uh, north of, yeah. Trouble's brewing. Trouble's, a, you know, it's bubbling underneath the surface. Tension. Well, I'm, I'm here to help people let go of their unnecessary tension. Yeah, well, we all appreciate it. Um. So, uh, 
So I had an interesting experience. Well, very my not really interesting, but thought provoking. So I've been going to Napa a lot. I have a storage cube up in Napa because it's cheaper. And so I realized that there's this whole industry of spas, you know, like resorts mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. in the middle of country, you know, in the middle of farmland. You go in and you, 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 uh, you hang out by the pool. You, know, you kind of pretend you're on a cruise ship, but you're in the middle of a farmland. And, and the whole lifestyle has completely eluded me. I've never partaken in any of that. And so I, 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 took, I turned off. I went to this restaurant, like this tiny little country restaurant, because it was all painted red. It looked very inviting, you know. And I go in, and, and the restaurant was part of a spa, you know. And I go in, and everybody's rich. You can just feel it, you know. Like, just, they all had ex excellent Alexander Technique lessons. They were all had great posture and great teeth, and they were well-dressed, you know. This is, this is how elites live, bro. This is like... Sweet. The, you could just, you could feel it just in the air, you know? Probably, probably I, 20, you know, 10 to 20% of my Alexander Technique clients have been billionaires. Really? Yeah. Because yeah. if you got that kind of money, you know, you're into like micro adjustments. You're into, uh, you can afford to do these little uh, strategic inputs just to refine whatever burrs might be on the edge of your otherwise smooth existence so so i go inside the restaurant you know i sit down and i sit at the bar and yeah i had been working you know at the storage cube so it was a bit hot and sweaty so i decided to treat myself to a beer you know and mm -hmm. so i had the beer and it was it was transcendent it was the best beer i'd ever tasted it was like unbelievable you know, and I'm not really a beer drinker per se, but this, you know, because it's got a lot of carbs and stuff. So I try to avoid it because carbs just stick to me like, like you wouldn't believe, bro. So anyway, I have the beer and I'm looking around. I'm taking in all of this excellence that I'm surrounded by, you know, and I'm like, wow, there is, there are other ways to live. I, I should aspire to this. Maybe I'll just stay the night one night. I'll come to this spa, you know, and I'll just spend the night at the spa and hang out by the pool. I mean, it might be like 200 bucks a night, but, you know, maybe I can just treat myself on my birthday or something, you know. So I, I start fishing around, you know, look for a brochure. There's no brochures. Oh, God, I got a retard just right in the middle of the road. Oh, God. I wish I could point my screen all right, bro. Sorry. <laughs> I just, <laughs> it was a boomer. Just confused boomer wandering in the middle of the street. All right. So, um, yeah, I, I'm looking for a brochure. I'm like, well, how much could this cost? You know, to just to rub elbows with the elite for one night, you know? Yeah. And so, so I'm looking for a brochure. There's no brochures. And then I, so I pull out my phone and then I, uh, you know, I find it online and I look down and I said, wow. $350 a night, that's kind of steep, you know? And then I look again, and it's not $350 a night. It's $3,500 a night. <laughs> <laughs> and I, holy, this is, 
this is Vivek Ramaswamy levels of like, you know, yeah. eliteness happening, you know? So I immediately nixed those plans to, uh, you know, hang with the elite. And it just, that's the purpose of these high prices. It's just to keep the riffraff like me out. And you know? how much was your beer? The beer was remarkably affordable. It was $8, which is basically San Francisco prices. So, um, so I, I tipped $2 like the, like the, uh, you know, like the hop knobber that I am. Um, but it was so tasty, Luke. It, it just, it was like, it felt like it, it was like a vitamin. It felt like vitamin water, you know, some sort of high power protein drink. I'm, I'm on the bridge right now, bro. There's a tour Blessings. bus. And I'm passing a tour bus. Don't you hate that anxiety when you're going by a bus? Because you know they can't see you. You know they could just crush you at any instant. All right, I'm past the bus. So anyway, um, but country life, you know, it, it's not all like, um, you know, hillbillies and hayseeds and so forth. It's, 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 it can be elite. It can be like, uh, uh, you know, there, there's, a, there's an aristocratic dimension to the country if you look for it. I haven't done any travel since 2007 where I'd have to pay for a hotel. And even in 2007, I think I only had to pay for a hotel for one night. <laughs> the other nights, we either crashed with friends or we slept in the car at Yosemite. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I'm very similar. I'm very cheap that way. Uh, I know that feeling. Because it feels like such a waste of money. Yeah. You know? Because, you know... Like I had, last time I spent a hotel like two hundred bucks, I'm like God, I just felt crushed by that. So, but I, I can't sleep in cars either. But what about Airbnb? Are you uh, are you opposed to? Airbnb? I, I I'm not opposed to anything, but uh, I, I've never I've never done it. But uh, yeah, it seems seems like a good option. Yeah, I did I did that a few times, but that also has a weird aspect to it, you know, because. You're in and amongst someone's domestic scene, you know, and uh, uh, I don't know. There's no, there's no perfect solution. Now, what do you think about these uh, sprinter vans? A lot of people are living in vans these days. Van like, life. I mean, it seems fun for a week or two or three. Yeah, max. Yeah. 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 I couldn't. I couldn't take it. I, I couldn't take it. Uh, so I don't know, Vivek. You know, Vivek. Vivek, there's sort of like, uh, he's one of these Silicon Valley, high-achieving Asian types, like an Andrew Yang. Um, uh, there's another one from Silicon Valley. I'm, I'm forgetting his name. But I, I agree with you. He is. He doesn't have the rough edges that a Trump has. Yeah. Um, uh, what I wonder what how he would handle the um, the different gifts question, you know, like how he would thread that needle. Um, has he spoken about that topic? I'm not aware. I've never I've never like paid attention to him cognitively. I just know that I like how I feel when I watch him or listen to him. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, I I don't see him like activating sort of the animal spirits that Trump sort of activates. Uh, and so that sort of cuts both ways, you know. The more he appeals to the MAGA crowd is the, uh, the more he uh, appeals to the MAGA crowd, he also excites 
the anti-MAGA crowd. So maybe there is room for some 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 kind of guy with a buffered edges that Vivek has that could slip in there. My theory is that Romney is actually the dark horse in all of this. Nobody, nobody, nobody under the sun believes me. Everyone thinks that's a crazy notion. I think it's Glenn, Glenn Youngkin. So Rupert Murdoch is trying to encourage Glenn Youngkin, the Republican governor of Virginia, to run. That could be. Oh, he's the one that won the election in Virginia, right? Yes. That, that stunned everybody. Yes. Right? Yes. Yeah. Huh. I just think Romney has the uh, Rolodex. You know, he's got all the money in the world. And uh, he's sort of... You know, he was governor of Massachusetts, at, and which is a very blue state. And I, I don't know if he ran as a Republican or an independent, but he was able to sort of navigate that pretty well and become governor. Um, he's one of these mysterious guys where he sort of claims residency in three states, so which is sort of a nice trick. But he's not going to rock the boat. Um, and he's not going to stir up the antipathy that Trump stirs up. So, I don't know. Just a thought. And he'd, he'd release this animal spirits. <laughs> no, he wouldn't. No, he wouldn't. The, the HN crowd would go mad for him. Yeah. <laughs> Richard Spencer um, would endorse him. Yeah. Uh, so, I'm still subscribed to Richard. I can't quite cut the cord yet. Um, and what what is Richard being talking about? I'm at a loss about? for um, good quality. Uh, Richard, um, he's come very very milk toast. You know, he has had some event in his life that has changed. He's completely unrecognizable from what he used to be. Um, I mean, he he basically identifies as a liberal now, and as a rather uh, you know. He seems to be an unironic supporter of Biden. So with, with, with Richard, you're always thinking that there's a, like, always an ironic dimension to whatever he's saying. Um, but he, he doesn't seem to be uh, being ironic. He seems to genuinely think Biden's a great president. So I don't know. It's all very confusing. He's, he's a great speaker. Like Richard gives a good feeling to the listener because he, he knows how to speak and communicate. Yeah. Yeah, and uh, sometimes he has some interesting guests, but he also has some morons on his podcast on, that are sort of part of his regular uh, callers. Um, and then he shows up on these uh, these Twitter spaces, which is sort of another interesting channel um, where he sort of really gets down and dirty and mixes with the plebs, you know. And so <laughs> truly retarded people on, on the panel with him, and he sort of has to tard wrangle them. Which is amusing. And, how's and that? I haven't heard much out of Chuck. I haven't heard much yeah. out of Chuck Johnson. That was usually appeal of those things because Chuck Johnson would sort of be on those spaces. And then he'd have some wild you know, conspiracy stuff that would like really spice up the sauce, you know. But I don't know what's going on with him. Do you think that when Vivek is sworn in as president of the United States, he will be holding his hand on the Bhagavad Gita or on the Bible? Uh, uh, I think his handlers would put a Bible there. Yeah, I think so. Although it'll be the Bhagavad Gita, but they put like a Bible cover on it, you know. No, he's a smooth dude. I'm sure he'll be he'll be down with the Bible. He knows yeah, how to talk to like, to people, you know, of faith. 
Yeah, and the one clip I did see of him that I did like was, you know, he sort of took on this climate change nonsense head on and, like, nailed the correct talking points. So I got a little thrill in my leg when I heard that. I enjoyed that. Um, you know, I'm a total climate change denier. Un, un, unironically, unapologetically, I am just a full-on denier of the whole, the whole narrative. You're not listening to expertise, bro. But I am. That's the problem. I'm with expertise. Oh. Uh, un, there's, there's two types of expertise. There's expertise that have a financial stake in a particular conclusion and those that are truly independent. And the, those that are independent are usually retired. And the people that are retired agree with me, and I actually agree with them. They're the one that explained this to me, and it makes perfect sense. And so every time I hear somebody spouting the orthodox climate change narrative, I, I just bristle. I, I think we have, to, we have to take this on, head on, bro. It's, a, it's the error of our day. They're using, this, they're using this narrative to sort of manipulate people, and it's terrible. Yeah, I don't have strong opinions. Can you hear like background noises? I'm trying. Uh, I, you sound fine. Is the audio so. okay? Yeah, audio is just fine. All right. Um, anything going on with Ethan yeah. Ralph? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. So he's sort of he's had like a genuine. It seems like he's had a genuine personality transformation. I mean, genuine. He's like apologizing to which the old Ethan Ralph would never do. It doesn't, didn't seem, you know, anytime you'd face any resistance, he would turn on them and just curse them a blue streak. And now he's basically seems to be uh, making amends and repairing uh, old relationships. It's, it's kind of heartwarming. Have you been watching any of this? No. I mean, I, yeah. I see occasional tweets. Yeah. Yeah. No, I listened to a uh, conversation with Josh Moon, who was used to be one of his biggest detractors. And you couldn't you couldn't overstate the degree to which they hated each other, and then they, they were talking because uh, they basically made common cause against Nick Frentis, who is has taken a nosedive. His whole empire seems to be crumbling, um, and you know they, the 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 sort of homosexuality pedophilia type of allegations seem to uh, have really created a united front against Nick. And, and so, and so Ralph is sort of leading this charge, and he was doing some stuff. I don't think he's doing hard drugs anymore. And he's actually quite lucid, and he's actually um, he's kind of got a gift for language, says the Ralph. Yes, you know, which is surprising because um, when he's not cussing and he's actually uh, trying to make a substantial point, he's actually capable of making a point. So I thought that was nice to hear. But I'm not a I'm not a heavy follower of that whole community. That that whole arc seems to have come and gone. We're 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 thirsting for something new, Lou, and we're hoping that you can hoist that banner and become the new locus of every edgy idea under the sun. I <laughs> thought all... my my shows on decoding trauma would be the ticket. <laughs> no, it doesn't quite have the, the sauce. Doggone it. So yeah, sorry, Luke. I don't really got much going on. It's like such a nice time of year you know late august where you know you can feel like summer's finally giving up and uh days are know, getting it, shorter yeah it's just not that oppressive 
I don't like it when things you know gets dark at nine o'clock. It's just too late. I'm tired of the sun by that point. I, I'm ready for a little darkness. But there's also it's sort of tinged with the fact that you know winter's coming, and so there's that sort of pre-autumn sort of melancholy that's sort of in the air in late summer. Uh, late summer. Oh. And the pro and the produce is like off the charts great this year. Have you noticed that? No. No. Uh, you don't hear you don't tune into oh that's right because you just go amazon <laughs> whatever they amazon. give me on amazon <laughs> that's terrible i mean the tomatoes taste like tomatoes you know and the peppers taste like peppers it's just so i've been cooking up a storm eating salad every day i'm feeling good bro feeling now good. how many beers did you have at this place uh only one only one okay yeah no i wouldn't i wouldn't impair myself Okay. I didn't, and I wouldn't risk arrest uh, for that. And believe it or not, I mean, it would take a, you know, I got, I'm not proud of this, Luke, but I've got a pretty, uh, pretty solid alcohol tolerance. I'm not, I'm not going to lie. <laughs> well, I mean, that's a product of a lot of hard work. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I think, I think if you work hard, you do a bunch of physical work, you can treat yourself to a drink or two. And you know, I, I, I think you, you owe that to yourself. Don't you think you're missing out on a big dimension of life, Luke, with all these restrictions that you live with? Don't you think you're... Just you want to let those animal spirits run a bit? Oh, I like letting my animal spirits out, just not vis-a-vis -vis alcohol. Uh-huh. It'd be funny to see... Uh, I, well, you've drunk, you've had wine here and there, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, um, so, anyway... Um, I don't know. I don't feel like I'm adding too much. Okay. Blessings, bro. <laughs> All right. All right. Blessings. Okay. Take care, man. Bye-bye. Right, Bye. Okay. Get back to this David Brooks essay here. A second related question is, why have Americans become so mean? I was recently talking with a restaurant owner who said that he has to eject a customer from his restaurant for rude or cruel behavior once a week, something that never used to happen. A head nurse at a hospital told me that many on her staff are leaving the profession because patients have become so abusive. At the far extreme of meanness, hate crimes rose in 2020 to their highest level in 12 years. Murder rates have been surging, at least until recently. Same with gun sales. Social trust is plummeting. In 2000... If only we knew what uh, caused low social trust. Oh, wait, we do. Right, the more diversity, the lower the social trust, and it's not like all oh, diversity is equal. Uh, that type of diversity that seems to commit a lot of crimes, particularly violent crimes, tends to have a dramatically negative effect on social trust. So some types of diversity don't have much of an effect on social trust. Two-thirds of American households gave to charity. In 2018, fewer than half did. The words that define our age reap. So people are most likely to give to charity when it helps someone like them. That is human nature. I think one of the first episodes of the TV show Yellowstone, this older guy tells a younger guy, until they change human nature, people are better off with their own kind. True. Of menace, conspiracy, polarization, mass shootings, trauma, safe spaces. 
We're enmeshed in some sort of emotional, relational, and spiritual crisis, and it undergirds our political dysfunction and the general crisis of our democracy. What is going on? Over the past few years, different social observers have offered different stories to explain the rise of hatred, anxiety, and despair. The technology story, social media is driving us all crazy. The sociology... I mean, why can't everyone just be like David Brooks? Uh, jettison two wives, trade them in for a newer model, for a young, hot research assistant. I think this would have a dramatic happiness effect on at least the men who are in a high-status position and able to do that. ...story. We've stopped participating in community organizations and are more isolated. The demography story. So when do people participate more in social organizations, all right? When they social organizations where they can hang out with their own kind, including their own sex, all right? Male-only clubs, right? more people will participate. But because of the civil rights industrial complex, there are fewer such opportunities. Hence, people lead more disconnected and isolated lives, and they have less of a sense of community. America, long a white-dominated nation, is becoming a much more diverse country. A change that has millions of white Americans in a panic. The wow. So why would they be in, in a panic? Do they have some kind of sense that the country around them is changing in ways that are not to their benefit? I, I'm not aware in history of many examples of countries where the overwhelming dominant population has become a minority and that led to thriving. What are, what are some examples of that? Economy story. High levels of economic inequality and insecurity have left people afraid, alienated, and pessimistic. I agree to an extent with all of these stories, but I don't think any of them is the deepest one. Sure, social media has bad effects, but it is everywhere around the globe, and the mental health crisis is not. Also, the rise of despair and hatred has engulfed a lot of people who are not on social media. Economic inequality is real. But it doesn't fully explain this level of social and emotional breakdown. The sociologists are right that we're more isolated. But why? What values lead us to choose lifestyles that make... Okay, when your way of life is being destroyed, right, you're going to have less incentive to reproduce life. So if you have a traditional conception that marriage is between solely a man and a woman... Right, the imposition of gay marriage into your society will be as painful or more painful than a punch to the head. If you conceive of the military being a heterosexual institution, right, the forced integration of gays into the military and the military becoming pro-gay will be an assault on your hero system. Right? If you believe that people should have the rights to use their private property essentially as they see fit, such as the rights to hire and fire as they see fit, the rights to freedom of association, then the imposition of a vast civil rights industrial complex is going to be incredibly upsetting. So the whole code by which you may have led your life is slowly, often rapidly being chipped away, being destroyed, being blown up. And so, yeah, you're going to be unhappy, less effective. Your whole way of, of living has been destroyed your environment for, for living, your living space, the, the world around you, the code by which you found meaning and purpose and direction in life has been destroyed. Just lonely and miserable. 
The most important story about why Americans have become sad and alienated and rude, I believe, is also the simplest. We inhabit a society in which people are no longer trained in how to treat others with kindness and consideration. Oh, it's lack of training. No, it's not lack of training. Right? If you're a happy person, you naturally tend to treat other people you know, in a, a positive fashion. You're naturally an unhappy person. If you're an isolated person, you naturally tend to behave in an antisocial fashion. This is not primarily a matter of training. This is the result of precognitive reactions, right? Before the rationality, before the training, before the thinking, right? We have all sorts of responses to life that come from our bodies, come from our hero systems, come from things that we don't really have the ability to, generally speaking, you know, have rational reflection on before we have these reactions. Our society has become one in which people feel licensed to give their selfishness free reign. The story I'm going to tell... So if you live an integrated life, right, if you have a family, you're not going to be able to give your selfishness free reign. Right? If you're part of a community, by definition, you can't give your selfishness free reign. If you're part of a club, an organization, a charity, where you gather together with other people and do things, right, you're not going to be able to give your selfishness free reign. So it's the destruction of freedom of association. It's the imposition of the civil rights industrial complex. It is the imposition of uncalled for amounts of immigration so that you can't even speak the same language as your neighbors and people you might have to interact with. Right? This produces a sense of corruption of everything that people used to hold sacred is about morals in a healthy society a web of institutions families schools religious groups community organizations and workplaces helps form people into kind and responsible citizens the kind of people who show up for one another so before institutions there are ties there are bonds there is the, the family, extended family, the community, the nation, the tribe. We're not primarily individuals who need moral training. We are primarily members of tribes who learn about life from our bonds with other members of our tribe. And we get direction and purpose and meaning in life from the hero systems that we inherit from our tribe. We live in a society that's terrible at moral formation. Moral formation as I will use that stuffy-sounding term here, comprises three things. First, helping people learn to restrain their selfishness. How do we keep our evolutionarily conferred egotism under control? Second. Yeah, if you have ties, if you have bonds, if you have a mother, a brother, a sister, a father, nieces, nephews, uncles, aunts, cousins who are in your life, right? you will want to keep them in your life and you will want to keep on good terms with them. And that's where you'll get your moral education. Teaching basic social and ethical skills. How do you welcome a neighbor into your community? How do you disagree with someone constructively? Right, people get this from their hero system, which they usually get from their tribe, their community, their church, or their synagogue. But the traditional ability to organize around a church, a tribe, a community, right, has been diminished by the imposition of massive civil rights legislation, government investigations and litigation, as well as the imposition of vast amounts of immigration so that we have less and less in common with our fellow citizens. Third, 
helping people find a purpose in life. Morally formative institutions hold up a set of ideals. Look, we get our purpose in life from our hero system that we usually inherit from our tribe, our community. Right? That's where we get purpose in life. It's not something that's necessarily taught to us out of a book, disconnected from these relationships. When you convert to Orthodox Judaism, you convert to a tribe. It's primarily you are joining a tribe, and then out of that relationship that you have with the tribe, you learn the ways of the tribe, and you learn the books that the tribe studies, and you learn how the tribe interprets those books and applies those books. But if you just go to the books without the connection to the tribe, you're not going to have a realistic sense of how to live and how to do things. They provide practical pathways toward a meaningful existence. Here's how you can dedicate your life to serving the poor, or protecting the nation, or loving your neighbor. For a large part of its history, America was awash in morally formative institutions. Its founding fathers had a low view of human nature, and designed the Constitution to mitigate it even while validating that low view of human nature by producing a document rife with racism and sexism. Men okay, so it was those communities, those bonds, those tribes that were rife with racism and sexism that provided hero systems, that provided purpose, meaning, and moral guidance to people, and that encouraged the development of the United States into such a powerful and formally Know, more trusting and cohesive society. So David Brooks talks as though racism and sexism are the antipathy of moral development, when really they are part and parcel of moral development, because moral development should come from one's in-group identity. Right? That's where you should learn morals. You form a connection. You create a shared reality with others out of that bond, out of that connection, out of that tie comes morality, right? Racism and sexism is the basis for morality. It's not the antithesis of morality. Right? There's no meaningful morality without understanding differences between in-groups and out-groups and what is your family, what is your group, what is your tribe, what is your community, and who are the out-groups that threaten the well-being of those who you love. Right? Racism, sexism, homophobia, Islamophobia, right? These are all the bases of morality. They are not what contradicts morality. I find to be a sort of beings very badly constructed, Benjamin Franklin wrote, as they are generally more easily provoked than reconciled or disposed to do mischief to each other than to make reparation and much more easily deceived than undeceived. So who are people more likely to be open and honest with? People who are like them. Who are people less likely to deceive? Who are people less likely to murder and to rape and to torture? People who are like them. Right? It is genetic similarity, cultural similarity, religious similarity. Right? It is all these similarities that tie people together, give them the opportunity to create a shared reality with each other, and from those bonds comes morality. If such flawed, self-centered creatures were going to govern themselves and be decent neighbors to one another, they were going to need some training. For roughly 150 years after the founding, Americans were obsessed with moral education. In 1788, Noah Webster wrote, 
the virtues of men are of more consequence to society than their abilities. And for this reason, the heart should be cultivated with more assiduity than the head. The progressive philosopher John Dewey wrote in 1909 that schools teach morality every moment of the day, five days a week. Alice Frizzell, the president of the Hampton. You know what teaches morality more effective than schools and readers and formal education? Uh, bonds, ties, liking people, loving people. If you get your sense of morality from the people who you love and who love you and who create something together with you. Institute, an early school for African Americans, declared character is the main object of education. As late as 1951, a commission organized by the National Education Association. Look, there's simply no evidence that any particular type of education you know, builds moral character. Right? What education can do is build an in-group identity. And out of that in-group identity will come moral character. One of the main teachers' unions stated that an unremitting concern for moral and spiritual values continues to be a top priority for education. The moral education programs that stippled the cultural landscape during this long stretch of history came from all points on the political and religious spectrums. School textbooks, such as McGuffey's Eclectic Readers, not only taught students how to read and write, they taught etiquette and featured stories designed to illustrate right and wrong behavior. In the 1920s, W.E.B. Du Bois's... So it's like when you start a new job and there's a, an employee handbook, right? What is a more realistic guide to how your job works and to what, what is considered right and wrong at your job? The employee guide or the advice that you get from your fellow employees who like you, even love you, and want to see you thrive. The, the real advice that you get from people who like you and love you is far more effective and far more on point than the employee handbook. So, too, that is the difference between creating a morality out of bonds and creating a morality out of some guidebook. Magazine for Black Children, the Brownies book, had a regular column called The Judge, which provided guidance to young readers on morals and manners. There were thriving school organizations with morally earnest names that sound quaint today. The Courtesy Club, the Thrift Club, the Knighthood of Youth. Look, these organizations all emerge from a certain genetic, cultural, religious grouping of people who felt united, who felt bonded by some shared identity, by genetic ties, religious ties, cultural ties. And then these books and clubs were an expression of pre-existing bonds, ties, markets of concern. Beyond the classroom lay a host of other groups, the YMCA, the Sunday School Movement, the Boy Scouts and Girl Scouts, the Settlement House Movement, which brought rich and poor... Look, these are all expressions of a cohesive people, right? This is what's causing the cohesion, right? These are expressions of pre-existing religious, cultural, and relative genetic cohesion. Together to serve the marginalized, Aldo Leopold's land ethic, which extended our moral concerns to include proper care for the natural world, Professional organizations which enforced ethical codes, unions... And so you think people with ties to blood and soil are going to just completely disregard the soil around them? 
right? You have ties to blood and to soil. You will naturally care for those who are genetically, culturally, religiously linked to you, and you'll have cares for the soil, right? Blood and soil nationalism obviously will include concern for the soil. Workplace associations, which in addition to enhancing worker protections and paychecks, held up certain standards of working class respectability. Well, if the employers and the bosses and the workers all come from the same people with close religious, cultural, and genetic ties, then concern for one another is normal, right? A sense of nationalism, that you're all in it together, that you're part of one extended family, that will naturally lead to both bosses and employees having some concern for each other's welfare. But if you bring in massive numbers of immigrants so that the employees and the employers are very different people, right, then you are fracturing that traditional bond. If you destroy the bases on which people found meaning in life, such as heterosexual marriage, private property, freedom of association, the military as a heterosexual institution, the church as a sacred institution, if you destroy these traditional bases for meaning and purpose and direction in life, then people will become adrift. And when people are adrift, they don't tend to act as well as when they are bonded and connected. And of course, by the late 19th century, many Americans were members of churches or other religious communities. Mere religious faith doesn't always make people morally good. But living in a community, orienting your heart toward some transcendent love, basing your value system on concern for the underserved. Okay, it wasn't uh, being part of a community that was united around directing your heart towards transcendent love. It's having real-life community. When you have real-life community, then you naturally want to extend yourself to others who are like you, who are part of you. Right? When you, you feel like that, that you have a real, concrete, you know, flesh-and-blood tie to other members of your nation or your tribe, right? you'll naturally extend yourself on their behalf, and you'll be on alert for threats to the welfare of your group. Those things tend to. An educational approach with German roots that was adopted by Scandinavian societies in the mid to late 19th century had a wide influence on America. It was called Bildung, roughly meaning spiritual formation. As conceived by Wilhelm von Humboldt, the Bildung approach gave professors complete freedom to put moral development at the center of a university's mission. In schools across Scandinavia, students study... So David Brooks is a very attractive writer. He's got you know, great anecdotes, great stories, but they almost always fall apart upon examination. So he, he's great at spinning stories. He's great at, you know, coming up with analogies. He's great with his anecdotes and theories, but uh, he's not particularly dedicated to facts, as I've explained on a past show, that he, he tends to be, you know, rather, rather reckless with the truth. He has about as much regard for the truth as he does for his ex-wives. But he sure can, you know, spin a story, right? He, he sounds very morally serious. Literature and folk cultures to identify their own emotions, wounds, and weaknesses in order to become the complex human beings that modern society required. Schools in the Bildung tradition also aimed to clarify the individual's responsibilities to the wider world, family, friends, nation, humanity. Start with the soul and move outward. 
The Bildung movement helped inspire the great books programs that popped up at places like Columbia and the University of Chicago. They were based on the conviction that reading the major works of world literature and thinking about them deeply would provide the keys to living a richer life. Meanwhile, discipline in the small proprieties of daily existence, dressing formally even just to go shopping or to a ball game, was considered evidence of uprightness, proof that you were a person who could be counted on when the large challenges came. Much of American moral education drew on an ethos expressed by the headmaster of the Stowe School in England, who wrote in 1930 that the purpose of his institution was to turn out young men who were acceptable at a dance and invaluable in a shipwreck. America's National Institute for Moral Instruction was founded in 1911 and published a children's morality code with ten rules for right living. So... David Brooks, he, he sounds amazing, right? But upon uh, closer examination, his work just uh, Michael, falls apart. What do you know about a book called Bobos in Paradise? I know that this is the, uh, the book that made David Brooks famous. Yes. Or whatever he is. Thesis of the book. Oh, my God. I know. It's a big brick. This episode is going to have, like, a lot of quotes because some of the stuff that he says in the book, like, you really have to, like, read it to believe it. <laughs> All right. The thing that struck me as oddest was the way the old categories no longer made sense. Throughout the 20th century, it's been pretty easy to distinguish between the bourgeois world of capitalism and the bohemian counterculture. The bourgeoisie were the square, practical ones. They defended tradition and middle-class morality. They worked for corporations, lived in suburbs, and went to church. Meanwhile, the bohemians were the free spirits. They were the artists and the intellectuals, the hippies and the beats. But I returned to an America in which the bohemian and the bourgeois were all mixed up. It was now impossible to tell an espresso-sipping artist from a cappuccino-gulping banker. And this wasn't just a matter of fashion accessories. I found that if you investigated people's attitudes towards sex, morality, leisure time, and work, it was getting harder and harder to separate the anti-establishment renegade from the pro-establishment company man. By the way, no, nothing I would like less than for David Brooks to investigate my attitude towards sex. <laughs> we have a really long excerpt about that later. <laughs> it's really dark. I feel like this is combining two of the most hackish think pieces the first is where you define an entire generation of people based mm -hmm. on like a couple of mostly aesthetic shared features. Mm -hmm. Like the modern version of this is you just find out what app is popular with 15 year olds and then you pitch to your editor a piece called like the Snapchat generation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right? <laughs> and then the other archetype is when you make the observation that a generation of people that used to be like more carefree and anti-establishment in their youth are now more bland and conservative uh, because they're like 45. It's like, well, this guy used to listen to Nirvana, but now he has a job selling right. insurance. <laughs> but then I also think that in a way that is not a given for the books that we talk about on the show, I think the central premise of this book is true. Mm -hmm. the, the first chapter is where he lays out the sort of core argument. And the core argument is essentially there used to be a much more entrenched hereditary elite in the United States, like the old money, Carnegie's, yeah. East Coast elites, right? And really, since the 1960s, there has been the creation of a kind of knowledge class. It's a bunch of people who have these kind of professional jobs and who do have this kind of ethos that comes from the kind of post-hereditary aristocracy world. Yeah. I, I think that is true. Yeah. And I feel like smarter people have written about it. Yes. About sort of, you know, <laughs> this sort of post-New Deal realignment right. where you had this generation of more educated upper middle class types, not really part of the elite, but sharing some some common features and, in fact, perhaps 
associating themselves with the elite more than the traditional middle class. And I think when this giant class of like just below upper class people was created, those people brought their sort of counterculture attitude and also Mm -hmm. their counterculture aesthetics into that class. It's really just the the train. So there's a great article in Salon saying that, you know, fact after fact is just wrong. He just makes things up. Why would someone with the level of prestige and influence as David Brooks be so woefully sloppage, sloppy in his reportage and worse? Why does he just keep making things up? He gets paid huge sums of money for his bestseller books. He's always on TV, but he's just constantly, you know, inventing things. It's It's kind of stunning how much he just makes up and willfully distorts. He's just all over the place. Things in so many different ways. Right. <laughs> and David Brooks is interested in none of these ways. <laughs> David Brooks is like, you ever notice that people are drinking a lot of cappuccinos these days? Exactly. Like, this is <laughs> this is what he's interested in is basically he's just, like, driving around strip malls and, like, taking notes on stuff that he sees. But he's not doing any of the, like, actual analysis or even, like, meeting these people. Like, this is a book about bobos, right? About a social class that comprises somewhere, you know, 50, 80 million people, Right. This book does not have one interview. So, like, you don't get any specificity in this book, but you do get a lot of, like, what we saw in the earlier description where he's like, cappuccino gulping bankers. It feels like what he really wants to say is, like, doesn't this stuff seem a little bit gay? Yeah. But he can't say that. (laughs) It is. He tries to mask it because he says, like, I'm a bobo myself in the introduction. But, like, he fucking hates these people. It's, like, really (laughs) obvious that he fucking hates these people. (laughs) So, okay. So, basically, his entire argument, which, again, could have been, like, a magazine article. It would have been fine. (laughs) Is that it's essentially education that has caused all this that the the mass availability of education starting in the 1960s right it's the, it's the lack of education or it's the mass availability of education he's just all over the map in class and the way that he does this is by talking about the new york times wedding pages which i think is like a smart pop journalistic way to do this of just like to draw the con yeah he, he's great with coming up with compelling anecdotes in county and the ease with which i was able to spend 20 dollars on a meal he laughed. I didn't see it when I was there, but it's true. You can get a nice meal at the Mercerburg Inn. I said it was just as easy at Red Lobster. That was partially to make a point that if Red... Okay, so here David Brooks is called out for just making things up. He fucking baffling and I can't believe it got past an editor. Like... <laughs> Let me cue this up more correctly. Off ...of little status details that have this very appealing specificity to them. But then Sasha Isenberg actually checks these things. And it turns out that QVC is not more popular in red states. It's much more of like a suburban, exurban thing across the country. Doris Kearns Goodwin is like extremely popular in Texas. The thing about like they go to church in red states and they go to Thai restaurants in blue states is just totally fucking baffling. And I can't believe it got past an editor. Like <laughs> obviously they have Thai restaurants everywhere in America. Right, At one right. point he says like in red counties they have riding lawnmowers and in blue counties they have undocumented immigrants. <laughs> what the fuck? No, they have <laughs> like undocumented populations are larger in red states. Right, right. So at one point David Brooks said that he, like, it was a challenge for me to spend $20 on a meal when I was in Red America. And he's like, I went to Red Lobster over and over again. I couldn't spend 20 bucks. And then Sasha Isenberg goes to this place and, like, he goes to Red Lobster and the most expensive item on the menu is a steak for 28 bucks. (laughs) So in this piece, he says, I called Brooks to see if I was misreading his work. I told him about my trip to Franklin County and the ease with which I was able to spend $20 on a meal. He laughed. I didn't see it when I was there, but it's true. You can get a nice meal at the Mercerburg Inn. I said it was just as easy at Red Lobster. That was partially to make a point that if Red Lobster is your upper end, he replied, his voice trailing away, 
that was partially tongue-in-cheek, but I did have several mini-dinners there, and I never topped $20. I went through some of the other instances where he made declarations that appeared insupportable. He accused me of being too pedantic, taking all this too literally, or of taking a joke and distorting it. Satire has its purpose, but assuming it's on the mark, Brooks should be able to adduce real-world examples that are true. I asked him how I was supposed to tell what was comedy and what was sociology. Generally, I rely on intelligent readers to know. And I think at the Atlantic Monthly, every intelligent reader can tell what the difference is, he replied. You're not approaching the piece in the spirit of an honest reporter, he said. Is this how you're going to start your career? I mean, really doing this kind of piece? I used to do them. I know them. How one starts. But it's just something you'll mature beyond. <laughs> what a fucking hack. What a fucking hack, dude. Well, I, don't, I don't understand. Like, the like intelligent readers would know I was lying about the Red Lobster thing. Like, what? Yeah, why, why, would, how, why, why what, would you know that? Why would anyone think that you made up the amount of money that you're spending exactly. at Red Lobster? <laughs> and so it's already suddenly obvious what we're going to find when we return to the wedding. Yeah, so he's a hack, but here he is in the Atlantic. Why Americans so awful to one another? Much of American moral education drew on an ethos expressed by the headmaster of the Stowe School in England, who wrote in 1930 that the purpose of his institution was to turn out young men who were acceptable at a dance and invaluable in a shipwreck. America's National Institute for Moral Instruction was founded in 1911, and published a children's morality code with 10 rules for right living. At the turn of the 20... Okay, a code is not going to have nearly the effect unless it's in a relationship. So I posted a essentially a civility code for this channel, and it had an effect because I had a connection with my, my audience. If I didn't have a connection with the audience, posting a civility code wouldn't have much effect. 20th century, Mount Holyoke College an all-women's institution, was an example of an intentionally thick moral community. When a young Frances Perkins was a student there, her Latin teacher detected a certain laziness in her. She forced Perkins to spend hours conjugating Latin verbs to cultivate self-discipline. Perkins grew to appreciate this. For the first time, I became conscious of character. The school also called... She appreciated it because she had a relationship and a respect for the teacher, right? If she didn't have a relationship and a respect for the teacher, right, all that homework would likely have done her much good. ...upon women to follow morally ambitious paths. Do what nobody else wants to do. Go where nobody else wants to go, the school's founder implored. Holyoke launched women into lives of service in Africa, South Asia, and the Middle East. Perkins, who would become the first woman to serve in a presidential cabinet, Franklin D. Roosevelt's, was galvanized there. These various approaches to moral formation shared two premises. The first was that training the heart and body is more important than training the reasoning brain. Some moral skills can be taught the way academic subjects are imparted through books and lectures, but we learn most virtues the way we learn crafts through the repetition of many small habits and practices, all within a coherent moral culture, a community of common values whose members aspire to earn one another's respect. The other guiding premise was that concepts like justice and right and wrong are not matters of personal taste. An objective moral order exists, and human beings are creatures who habitually sin against that order. This recognition was central, for example, yeah, so that is part of the traditional conception of life, that there is meaning and order outside of yourself, and 
the good life, the meaningful life, the righteous life is found in conforming your life to this meaning and order. The liberal left perspective is that meaning is something that we create in our own brains, that uh, we are individuals who have the capacity to create meaning. So the liberal left places much more of an emphasis on the power of rationality to develop a strategic, autonomous, reflexive self. The traditional conception of life recognizes that human reason is a very weak read. And what will have much more effect on our behavior is number one, our genetics, number two, our imprinting, and number three, you know, factors outside of our cognition that are nonetheless affecting us. ...to the way the civil rights movement in the 1950s and early 1960s thought about character formation. Instead of assured progress in wisdom and decency, man faces the ever-present possibility of swift relapse, not merely to animalism... Yeah, is there anything that we associate the civil rights movement more with than character development? I mean, what amazing character development has proceeded from the mountains of civil rights legislation? Thank God. But into such calculated cruelty as no other animal can practice, Martin Luther King Jr. believed. Elsewhere, he wrote, The force of sinfulness is so stubborn a characteristic of human nature that it can only be restrained when the social unit is armed with both moral and physical might. At their best, the civil rights marchers in this prophetic tradition understood that they could become corrupted, even while serving a noble cause. They could... Uh, come on, I mean, anyone associate character development with the civil rights movement? It was composed of frequently just horrible people become self-righteous because their cause was just, hardened by hatred of their opponents, prideful as they asserted power. King's strategy of nonviolence was an effort simultaneously to expose the sins of their oppressors and to risk... Yeah, his strategy of nonviolence unleashed massive amount of criminal violence in this country, an explosion of murder, a massive deterioration in the quality of life, massive destruction of social cohesion and social trust, you had riots, Watts riots, riots in Detroit, all throughout uh, urban America, riots and murder and rampaging crime, particularly violent crime, as a direct result of civil rights. Thanks a lot, Martin Luther. Talk to you later. Bye-bye.